Hey, this is Ross Payton with Roleplaying Public Radio. This is RPPR episode 71. You've got wild talents. With me, as always, is Tom Church. Yep, yeah, I'm here. I am here propping you up. Yep, that's what you do. Uh, like any good co-host. So, you know. <laughs> I do what I'm told. Aww. It's the, it's the Nuremberg defense of co-hosts. That's... I follow orders. You were straight to Godwin's Law there, there Tom. Right, right off the bat. This episode is off to a great start. Well, uh, which I actually got to make sense because Wild Talents came out of Godlike, which is the World War II <laughs> superhero RPG. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking about Wild Talents, a one roll engine uh, superhero game. We've been playing a long campaign of it uh, on the RPPR actual play, The Heroes of New Arcadia. Uh, for this episode, I actually interviewed Greg Stolze over Skype about Wild Talents at length. So we'll, we'll have that in there. So this will be a double length episode. I know we're going to a monthly. Well, we have been a monthly scheduled podcast, but so we're just giving you a little, a little more for your, you know, bang for your podcasting dot download dollar whatever. Because that's that's what we that's what we do for people. Yeah, we're we're, we're here for you, the fans. Uh, so yeah, we, this will be a great episode. It will. It will the be. best, <laughs> except for all the other episodes that are that are all, even awesomer. Yeah. So uh, in this episode, uh, also we have some news up front. Uh, first off. Uh, I have been writing quite a bit lately. And, he has. Uh, and I've decided, you know, you know me as a zombie guy from the Zombies of the World, but there's more to me than just zombies. I mean, not much more, but... Well, there's fantasy. I'm a big fan of the fantasy genre, as those of you who like the uh, New World campaign will uh, be sure to realize. So uh, I decided to undergo sort of an experiment in writing. Uh, I've written... I've started a fantasy serial... Uh, slash uh, novel called The Heretic Cycle. Uh, and I'll have, uh, with this episode out, I'll have the first episode of uh, The Heretic Cycle, the first segment of it out, called Hunted. It's on Amazon and Smashwords. I have the links in there. You can see the cover in our show notes, which was done by the very talented Ian Moody. And basically, The Heretic Cycle is... Tom's already read it. Yes, I have. Uh, the first segment um, is a story uh, not about a hero, but about a villain. Uh, it's about the kind of guy who builds dungeons, uh, undergoes great schemes, performs evil, powerful magical rituals, and kills parties of adventurers. Not just single singular adventurers, but whole groups of them to further his Well, own. let's be honest. Yeah. Most, of, most of our group, the, us groups, have we have it coming. Yeah. Uh, this is true. So you know, we we steal and we loot in the name, uh, and we kill in the name of righteousness. Right. So that's the idea with uh, the heretic cycle. So if you want to hear uh, read about this this character who uh, goes through a number of aliases, in, in I call him Akil in the uh, in this first segment. Well, he'll be that for pretty much this entire first novel. Uh, then go ahead and pick it up. Uh, it's will be a fun experiment to see if people want to hear, listen, or read my uh, uh, fantasy writing. So that's got kobolds in it. It's got kobolds you, you, in it. And you can't go wrong with them. Right, exactly. Uh, so If you don't like kobolds, the, just kill yourself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, in other news, the uh, Killsplosion for version 1.0 is out. As uh, I'll have a big link in the show notes for this episode, uh, killsplosion.roleplaynbubbleradio.com. You can download the PDF. I'll be updating the PDF incrementally. Uh, so even though I, I've gotten a lot of feedback from playtesting and I've revised and tweaked the game and there's got Tom has some great stories in it. Uh, Violet has done some great art for it. 
they're are great in simplicity. Yeah, uh, of guys exploding and killing, killing and exploding, kill explosion. Uh, there will be. I will continue to tweak oh. the rules. I just got it. I know. Kill explosion. It's, it's very son of a bitch. I know. It's layers upon layers of complexity. My mind is blown. So this is a very PvP, player versus player oriented game. Uh, I'll be playtesting new scenarios and new material out, and then I'll get this on once. So uh, this will be the version 1.0, but I'll, I'll continue can, to update the rules. Can I make a, as, unless I can make a comment, I've noticed that we played a session of this, and our group, we, we I think we game, we play together pretty well, work together. Killsplosion taught me that, but deep down, we really just want to frag each other. <laughs> I mean, hard. Yeah. So, uh, if you want to try that out with your group, uh, now is your chance. Uh, download it and see what And reveal what about. you really think of your friends. <laughs> yeah. Um, and let's see here. Uh, just on a minor side, I got an invitation to the Dota 2 uh, beta on, or alpha, or whatever you want to call it, on Steam. So, I, I am a total newbie. I have no idea what I'm doing other than it's to try and kill the other players. So, uh yeah, they, we're not exactly talking rocket science. Yeah, here. no, I'm I'm very bad at Dota, uh, but it's fun so far. Yeah, for now, for now, yeah. Um, and then finally, uh, I was a guest on the Drunk and Ugly podcast again to answer questions about game design, uh, which actually I bring up with Greg Stolzey. Uh, the listener uh, on their podcast wanted to know like how much math do you have to do to make game designs good. I was like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> more than you want to. No, no, no. It's the opposite, especially like White Wolf. Like, uh, we got into this in the World of Darkness, for example. Like, the old World of Darkness, there are two ways of modifying difficulty for a task. You could either raise or lower the target number. Like, instead, the default was rolling a 6 on a D10. You could make it like, oh, it's easy. You need to roll a 5 or a 4. Mm-hmm. Or it's really hard. You need to roll an 8. Or you and you need more them, than one. Well, or you... or No, it's not even that. Or you can drop one, one of the do- dice total. Yeah, you can raise or lower the dice total. So there's two different mechanics for adjusting duf- difficulty. And, like... Greg would ask them, what's the difference between those? And they're like, I don't know. So it's like, whatever the game developer felt like that day. (laughs) So, and like, mathematicians on, uh, figured out in the old world of darkness, the more dice you had in a pool, the more likely it was you would botch. So, oh yeah. Yeah. Because you, because of the way botching worked. Um, so yeah, you could actually have a five in your attribute and a five in the skill that goes with it. And screw up more often than you succeed exactly so <laughs> their <laughs> math game design <laughs> yeah not 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 as much as you think so uh but if you want to hear the whole answer from the drunk and the ugly i'll put a link up there so you can you can check me out being a jackass on there they're very professional and sophisticated unlock uh, us yeah exactly <laughs> it, they're the drunk and the ugly what about that does not scream professionalism and uh, rarefied taste yeah. and sophistication. Thank you, Tom. You're right. welcome, Ross. So I'm sorry. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, we are just. <laughs> Let's go drink some moonshine. That's that's all we do. That's, watch some Fox News. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I went there too. I know you're take quite, that. Quite the cutting edge comedian there. I do what I can. Uh, so, anyways, uh, so. Even though I've recorded the Greg Stolze interview about Wild Hounds first, uh, I've already done that. Uh, we're, Tom and I are going to talk about it first, and then we'll get it's kind of a lead into the interview. The interview is over an hour, so you know, let's. I know you guys want to listen to get a soda. Well, Tom, you know, it's all about Tom. I know Tom has the greatest fan base, and I'm just the monster. So you know, well, every monster has to have a hero, Russ. Oh, I see. 
I see how it is. Um, it's clearly not me, though. I don't know why they keep bringing me up. Uh, yeah, it's clearly Aaron. Aaron's the true hero of RPPR. <laughs> yeah, except he's the true villain in most of our games. <laughs> uh, but that's another topic. That is. Uh, so let's talk about Wild Talents. Wild Talents is a one-roll engine game. It, it, there is a setting for it in the hardcover edition. Uh, but if you get the $10 paperback edition... That's uh, everything you need to know. Yeah, the hardback is nice to have, uh, but you, that has all the mechanics. So it's, you know, universal superhero role-playing game. So um, one of the first things I think that we've talked about before and we should talk about right now is for those of you who are unfamiliar unfamiliar with One Roll Engine and Wild Towns in particular is the learning curve because that's kind of the that's obviously yeah. the very first thing you encounter in this system. Uh and this is one thing I talk about with Greg a little bit. Uh but to for my, my I'm just going to say it very politely Tom you can rephrase it however you want. I'm going to say it has a very what shall we say a front loaded learning curve. Indeed. That, and what would you I care? will say this. I first learned of this system on the way back from Gen Con. I think it was 2 years ago. Yeah. So yeah, it was Gen Con of 2010. I yeah. believe is I believe is when I first saw this. Yeah, and uh, of course I do what I normally do when I'm driving back from Gen Con is you sitting that you sit there reading the books you've written while I have well, to drive. Written, that well, that you bought. Sorry, or got, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, and then I'm as I'm driving, and then you get to you get your ass gets to fall asleep while I have to drive the whole way. Yeah, you son of a bitch. Yeah. But you were uh, re- checking this book out, and I do have a tendency, I kind of, you know, if it's something interesting, I keep glancing over as I'm flying down the highway at 80 miles an hour. Yeah. But I was asking about that, and, it says, and, and you were explaining to me, you didn't have it quite down yourself either. Yeah. But you were just kind of, you know, just kind of feeding me stuff that you were reading from it. And I admit, like, that sound, that, that, that sounds, like, sounds like madness. Yeah. Because we like we'd already played monsters, not the childish things, which is also one roll engine, but different building, different way of building. Well, it's it, the, monsters is essentially a kidified, well, not kidified, but you know, simplified version of Wild Talents. You know, they they strip everything. I mean, you still have the attack defend useful for powers, but everything in there is drastically, mm-hmm. re, you know, simplified and. In Wild Talents, they, they it's not simplified at all. So, no, like, it's right there. Power creation and the mechanics. So, and I'll say when we find then, but it was then, well, then 2011. By the time we finally sat down to do a game, yeah, we started actually January last year, and everyone pretty much had the same reaction I did, which was, "What the hell? Uh, what is this? What do these advantages and flaws even mean?" Yeah, there was a lot of that. Yeah, and. uh I really, I mean, I think there's one. Other, I forget who it was, but there's one other person in the group. I think besides you that kind of knew the system. Not, I mean, not well, but enough to uh, give advice. Yeah. And really, I mean, towards the first few sessions, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to get this. Did I even do these powers right? Yeah. But I admit, but it's one of those things that once you get past that, once it clicks for you, yeah, it, and it, it and it, and it will click. Yeah, if you keep at it. I mean, if you actually play it. Because it's not like Heroes or something like that, where Heroes is complex from beginning to end. Champions. Champions, sorry. Uh, well, yeah, no, it's the Hero System. You're yeah, right. Yeah, Hero System. Yeah, I own it, and I'm like, and uh, I actually, I bought those books. I fl- I read through them for about two hours. Yeah. My exact words after after reading it were, 
Well, fuck, I don't have enough breadcrumbs to get home. Yeah. Uh, because like it's under like the actual mechanics are rather elegant and simplified once you, but you have to understand what they're actually saying and what the exceptions and you know the 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 sort of core concepts are. And once you get that though, it's easy. But like you know, you, the hero system is just you know you have a lot of work to do regardless. And the thing is, and what I've noticed is you you and you keep having a lot of work to do. Yeah. Like it doesn't get simpler even as you're playing the game. Right. There's still all kinds of numbers and shit you have to keep track right. of. So, but while talents, it, it it does get simpler, especially once you get used to your, once you know what kind of dice you have to roll for your power mm-hmm. and what what each of the advantages and advantages and disadvantages do. Yeah. But yeah, it's really once you get it. Yeah. And it was, and I guarantee it might take you maybe a little bit longer than somebody else, but you if you play it, you will get it. Yeah, you will. And the great thing about Wild Talents is one of the great things about it is, um, unlike Mutants, Masterminds, and we'll get more into the the comparison a little later. Uh, I think is they divide powers by sources and permissions, mm-hmm. and so like the permissions, I think is really genius because what they mean in permissions in the system is that you say what kind of superpowers your character can have, and they divide it into like kind of. Slightly superhuman things, like you know, like a Batman character would mm. have peak performer. He would be super, you know, he would have great training and maybe some gadgets or whatever else. But he can't have like cosmic radiation mm. or whatever. But uh, type powers. But you can give, or you can get the. So you can, as a GM, could limit everybody. If you wanted to do, say, a Watchman slash or Batman type game, you could say everyone has to be these kind of permissions only. Mm-hmm. And so you'd make the game a lot like a lot of the the difficulty in running and playing this game. And we'll go into the difficulty of the the challenges of running a superhero game with Greg uh, uh you know in the next segment but uh come from dealing with superpowers. Cuz superpowers can be fucking plot defeaters. Like one of the things that Greg reads, if you're a mind reader, you know, you can solve plots basically instantly unless yeah. you have a mind reading tel- uh, nullifier. And after a while, that gets really fucking annoying. It's like in Star Trek The Next Generation. Why can't Counselor Troy just read everyone's mind and find out what the fuck's going on? So what's yeah. the excuse this week? You know, so uh, that that's kind of the thing is you can you can cut that off at the past by saying everyone's going to have these permissions and these permissions only. Mm. So anyway, um that's one of the things about the system I, I really like, and that's yeah. now the thing. Well, and the thing I really like is you really truly can create the superhero you want. Period. Yeah. Like, and exact and mutants are masterminds. The thing is, they have. I mean, that game has a whole list of powers, right? And you have to pick one from the list, right? And you can modify it a little bit. But really, only system wise. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about Mutants and Masterminds for those who aren't familiar? Yeah, it's okay. space. Well, yeah, Mutants and Masterminds. It's a point based version of the D twenty system. Yeah, OGL. Based, yeah, so. and um, the so. power and it has it has a, pr- a pretty extensive list of powers that you have to that you choose from that you put ranks in. Like depending on how many ranks, the more powerful it is. The more basically, the more dice you roll, the more damage. it Well, it's does. not the more dice you roll. It's like the the bigger well, the it's, bonus uh, you, is. Well, because I, it's sometimes it's sometimes it's dice too. Because I haven't played Mutants Masterminds in a while. So, like, for me, like, one roll engine, you roll a pool of D10s and mm-hmm. look for matches. That's the essential mechanic. And this one, it does stuff. Like, basically, all the powers do something that modifies you. Right. Well, in Mutants Masterminds, you roll a D20, add in modifiers. Yeah, and, and, then, and, then com- and basically compare it to another person's defense. Right. Uh, or a DC for, mm-hmm. like, a, scat- a static skill check. So that's the so you roll a single die, 
and added modifiers versus rolling a pool and looking for matches. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but and um, and so if we're as comparing, and I must first, I think I should say I love superhero games. Love them. One of my favorite times. And it used to be it, my favorite game. Used to be Heroes Unlimited from Palladium. Mm-hmm. For years, that was my favorite game. Right. Then you know, eventually, I get the honeymoon ended, and I realized that, well, I didn't like Palladium. And then, but then, Mutants and Masterminds came along, and I got the. I started with the first edition, and I got hooked because I really loved it. And then, second edition came along, fixed a lot of the problems I thought it had, but and I still I thought, oh man, my favorite game again. I think now, by now, uh, Wild Talent has now replaced it. It's just because you can. It's as I said, you can re- truly create the character you want with the powers you want. Right. I mean, uh, like using the example, say you want to uh, shoot fire out of your mouth as a power for some. Right. For just for the sake of argument. Well, then in mutant mass. I mean, in mutant masterminds, it would be you would take blast and you would say it was fire, and that's it. Basically, it's a ranged attack that does damage, and that, that's—I mean, you can—and you can say, "Well, I breathe fire through my mouth," but that does, has, it has no meaning, right? In this, in in wild talents, you can actually, you can actually, you know, it's, it attacks with range, and it does set things on fire because you take engulf and then burn, right? And then you could say, and you put, in, but like an if then, if my mouth is, you know closed or sealed and I can't open it power is useless you can really make it what you want to make it right there's a, a, a an extra precision in it mm-hmm. in, in other words you can instead of means mastermind is very vague uh, one thing also to bring up on the mechanics is also this sort of like this kind of is reflecting the core mechanics and one thing Greg brings up is that in by looking for matches you have two axes Accesses of uh, success or failure. You you have height the width, or, height or width, height and width. So you can you can measure success or you know or failure on those two axes. But in D twenty in means match, you have one you know axis. Mm-hmm. The, who, the who number ro- the who number rolled that, higher? Yeah. Well, the one number you know mm-hmm. the uh, that you roll the D twenty result. So uh, because again, it's not just comparative roles. It's it's often just mm-hmm. against the static. Uh, and also, it, it often does cause uh, combat to be really static. Right. So, that's the kind of thing. Is means of Mastermind is a very kind of like, this is a sort of it, and there's no exceptions to it. Everything mm-hmm. is covered within this. Where means of Mastermind says, he, because again, it, it's kind of the core philosophy. It's like, you, you have three categories of power sets. Are attacking, which is doing damage. Defending. Well, Wild Talents has this. Wild Talents, sorry, yeah. Wild Talents has, you know, attacking, Attack, defense, defend. and then useful. Useful is anything that is not attack or defense. And that's, that's period. And then you have, like, ways to measure what this power does in general terms. Like, by how many dice pull you can measure how fast mm-hmm. or how much weight it can affect or what range it can affect and that kind of thing. But that's the central philosophy. It's like, design what you want instead of, like, picking from a list. Yeah. And, and I mean, I'll say, and they, you know, Wild Talent, it does have some sample powers in there. Mm-hmm. But they're pretty much put there, I think, more more for uh, two reasons. Like, one, if you don't want to create your best, if you just want to create a quick character, you can just grab some powers from that. Or they're used, They're useful for for a guide. Yeah. Just as an example of of what of what certain advantages and, and flaws do, right? But you don't have to take them, or you can make a power that's very similar but your own with yeah. your own little with your own little quirks, and that's what I really love. I that's one well one of the things I really love about it is just you can really make the character you think of. 
I think, I mean, we you can see this in here as a new Arcadia because we have some really, like, unique characters in <laughs> it uh, with very unusual powers. I mean, one of the examples they have in the book of all talents is you can create an ability called suppress nuclear fusion and then, like, get it to where, like, for 200 or 400 points, you can turn the sun off or on. Mm-hmm. And you're like... And then that that's philosophy because like immune to masterminds you couldn't do that you couldn't make a, mm-hmm. a starting level character do that. Yeah, there's one post on our forums like a character that could become Godzilla. Yeah, uh, that is actually the post I made. I copied that from RPG.net, mm-hmm. and he does that in 180 points. So and it's like nine hard dice of defense, nine hard dice of growth, and like uh, nine, ten, or like eighteen attack levels on his nuclear death mm-hmm. breath. You know, nuclear breath. And that's the kind of thing you can do with wall talents. So it's uh, a very powerful system. You can engineer exactly what you want without having to go through all the math and ridiculous. Yeah. And even a low level character can be really unique. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, like, what I know you designed some characters out of the ones we played in the game. Yeah. Um, I have a. I, yeah, I was I uh, I have a character like a character I played in a lot of our games that's a, that's a shapeshifter that can pretty much become any living creature, even ones he makes up. Mm-hmm. And it's I, I've made him in mutants and masterminds before, but it took a lot of points to do it. Yeah, I did it. I did it in uh, Wild Talents for the st- I believe it's the standard three hundred point. Well, two hundred fifty, I think. Well, I mean that's their generic level. But I know it was no, it was no, it was two hundred fifty. Yeah. yeah, I did him at two hundred fifty points, and actually, and he was still pretty form, pretty formidable with other stuff left over. I mean, which means I didn't have all these powers and uh, like two skills or anything. Yeah. I actually made him like I had I had a you know three dice and all of his normal attributes. I had actual I had you know a good selection of skills, good basic willpower and you know, base will. Yeah, I could do it. I, I actually did it and. And I, I could get creative about the way I did it. Nice, but and I still think that. But the best thing that I think that it has over mutants and masterminds is that, to me, the damage system. Okay. Which and uh, by extent the combat system as well. Yeah. Because uh, once again, well, why don't you explain the mutants and masterminds? Mutants and masterminds. It's basically uh, D, it's basically uh, D twenty. D twenty. Yeah. Yeah. So you know you have your you know the D twenty plus your you have an attack bonus. And you know, various feats that you know can modify, like, modify what you can do, but it all comes down to a d20 roll. Mm-hmm. That's all it comes down to. You know, and maybe you can maybe some feats allow you to pull off something you know special, like right. you know. But at the end, it just comes down to that. It's pretty still pretty static. Right. Wild talents is gives you a lot more leeway in what you want to do. You know, like you can actually target some a particular particular limb or the head. You can choose to you know only do knockout damage if you right. want. Well, to elaborate on that, like in D twenty combat, the basic thing is everyone rolls initiative, and then the highest initiative the goes highest first. initiative goes first. That and that person declares what they're going to do, roll for their action, and then you resolve that action, and then you go next in line. So I go, you go, mm. I go, you go, basically. Now in wild talents, you have a very uh, a different. Again, this is part of the front loaded learning curve where you you have the op- opposite of that. Well, not quite the opposite, but everyone first declares their actions, and the person with the high senses declares last. So the lowest senses person declares first. And then the highest senses, which means he's he's the one that can actually adapt better to what's going right. on. Right. So if you declare first, you say I attack that guy, and then that guy says, 
Well, I, I dodge, and then my buddy, and then all four of them attack you. You know, attack the, mm-hmm. the one who went declare first. The guy like, I want to dodge it. Well, you already declared. You're too slow to react to their actions. Uh, you should have thought better. And then everyone rolls. And here's the, the great part. Everyone rolls, and then the actions are resolved in the order of the highest wit. So the, the so the person who declared first still could act first if he's, like, you know, very dumb you know, or has very low senses, but he has a ridiculously fast, you know, score. Mm-hmm. He could still, like, punch that guy before anyone else can hit him. Uh, it all depends on how the – on the highest wit. So it creates this kind of unpredictable uh, – nature of the battle and it makes it very strategic you have to think about your action because it's very common in wild talents fights for characters to waste their action like i dodge mm-hmm. and they're like nobody attacks you that turn because you were dodging you're just jumping out of the way so they focus on the guy who was shooting at them so you yeah know. or another well another thing another thing i love is uh as i said combat's a lot less static you can you can actually you know Put some s- style into what you want to do. You're mm-hmm. into your move. It's not just I attack him. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Okay. In using the D twenty, yes, you can. You know, you can describe this whole you know scenario of what your maneuver is going to be. Right. But it really just once again comes down to a D twenty roll. Right. In this one, you can actually you know take multiple actions for die die pen to if you uh, you mm-hmm. know for in exchange for die penalties. Mm-hmm. So you can, you can actually pull off that you know maneuver maneuver of attacking like two guys in this two or three right, guys you in make the same call round. shots or grapples or maneuvers or do a fast shot uh there are multiple maneuvers for each kind mm-hmm. of thing uh, and you can also do multiple actions easily so uh but and once again you have hit points yeah and i know that i know a lot of people are like oh god hit points the you know the, the you know the D mon- you know, D has hit points right and a lot of people don't like that because you know you took a hit it doesn't mean anything right but in this one, it has hit points, and it does matter what happens. Yeah. Because, you know, all of your hit locations have, um, you know, hit, bo- well, hit boxes. Yeah. And you can cripple somebody without killing them. Or, you know, you can take a lot of damage and have your arm that, ha- your arm that has your super weapon built into it blown off of you. Right. Or both of your arms, as the <laughs> case may be. Right. Well, we don't want to spoil anything for no. the listeners out there. But so. uh, or it's or you know you can have your legs blown off, blown off, and have to start crawling. Right. Uh, yeah. So you have a number of hitboxes per, and they can be filled with knockout or lethal, le- non-lethal or lethal damage. And there are a variety of penalties. Of course, there are some characters that are basically goo when they only have one hit location. That's the globular. Yeah, globular. That's the advantage. And they have slightly different rules. But so it can. The thing is, but you can do it. Right. And also, also, and also, there's a power called custom hit locations. Right. So you can have. So essentially, that's how you. Or or you can create like the weirdly shaped creature that. Right. Or a horse or whatever. Yeah. Actually, I saw someone actually made like an elder thing. Yeah, in mutes and master in a uh, wild talents. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, I know there's a ne- one roll engine horror game called Nemesis that has stats for elder things and mm-hmm. shoggoths. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised at all if they saw that if they converted. To so and yeah, mutes and masterminds. If you call it, the damage system works is that you 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 do your attack and it does a certain amount of damage, and then you have then the other person has to roll his toughness save against your damage. And if your if the uh, damage roll is higher than his toughness save, he takes that many that that much damage, and then like if he'd say taking you know a cert five damage gets you a bruise condition. You failed the the, yeah, uh, you, the DC you, by five. Or... Then you get like a bruise condition. If you fail by ten, you get like an injured condition, which adds really, it, but it just adds penalties to your further rolls. Right. 
which is, you know, fine, but that just that's a lot of numbers to keep track because you can have several conditions at once. And that's just a lot more just a lot more numbers you have to keep in your head. Yeah, that's just true. This is true. Uh, I find that, yeah, games where there's a lot of status modifiers, uh, status conditions often get bogged down in that. I know basically every edition of D&D gets bogged down mm-hmm. in that. Uh, that's why the D&D computer games do so well, you know, Baldur's Gate and Planescape Torment, you know, when you can just load up with, you know, modifier. I know there's a second edition, but that just kind of shows you, you know, uh, if you load up with a bunch of buff spells, then that's easy for the computer to manage, but like, not so fun, like, oh, well, I know we're going to kill the big bad guy, well, I'm going to cast all these protective spells on all my buddies. I think there's a moment in most D&D games that we all forget about, and that's, the frenzy of spellcasting buffs yeah, that's b- what before I mean. yeah. a fight begins. That's what I mean. Yeah, we're going to. Yeah, yeah that's exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, and then you have to figure out, you have to refigure out all your stats. Because yeah. I've actually had that happen. I've had that last over an hour one time. Yeah. Just all the, and not even just not even the other prep work like our strategy was yeah. just the buff spells that all of our casters were casting. Yeah, no, that like you should see the D, like the in third edition, the height of third edition, there were these online arena games where characters made these mid maxed monsters and they fucking killed each other like before the fight i cast and drink all the i cast all these spells on myself and drink all these drink all these potions and here are all my stats buff uh, i did a game actually i did an online game with you yeah yeah and like you know it was basically it was a group of villains trying to defend off against a yeah, horde of heroes fit, yeah and the, all the heroes took leadership yeah so that got ridiculous and it, i mean i've read some of these arena reports i cast dispel magic on them all right we're making dispel checks against 15 spells, you know, mm-hmm. and like here's a like Mutes Masterminds, obviously, Mutes Masterminds doesn't get as bad as that, but it does get every, every I think that's kind of a flaw in the system. I think that's kind of a bad part of the system to have status conditions where, especially when they're endemic. Now, you can like be negatively affected by things in Wild Talents, but you really don't have those kind of penalties, you know. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. you don't have those like condition after condition, and- like. You're and either up or you're not. I mean, you can get you have pain penalties, but like that's like oh yeah, you have minus two and all your shit. Yeah, and I, but and I, was, and I just really I really think combat needs like hit you know hit locations because it does matter where you get hit. Yeah, I think it does make it more dramatic, makes it more real. Uh, especially, I mean, especially immersive. if you see if you see like a mass, if you, especially like you know, the stuff where it's they're attacking before, and you can still you can still try to dodge it. And first they roll, and they're going to hit you unless you dodge. And then he rolls the damage, and you realize, if I don't dodge this, my head is pulped. I, yeah. I'm dead. So suddenly it gets shit gets a lot more real for like headshots and right, exactly. Uh, so in fact, that's one of the things in the Heroes of New Arcadia is you realizing your character is killing everyone he punches. You know, your mm-hmm. character is super strong, and he. Like you had hard dice in your in your which, yeah hard dice which means that all attacks all the, the, uh, those all dice all hard dice are automatic tens which are hit it's automatic headshot right so you're just punching people's heads off you're just fucking murdering them straight up and which that, you know came back to uh, came back to bite me right and that uh, well it also was like that's not very heroic and that's kind of thing I, I want to talk about next which is like how well do you think the wild talents game gets the superhero genre right. Like, one thing I know maybe that some people in our campaign, I don't know if this is just my fear, is that, you know, superhero comics have fights all the time, like Mm -hmm. every single issue, and we haven't had nearly as many fights in there, but partially because, like, you know, mostly, well, partially because of me, because I don't want to run a fight every session, because that's just... But it's also our group, and uh, I think, because we all kind of like the stuff, like, I mean, I, I can't speak for everyone else, but I think a lot of them agree that... 
to us, just a society that has to deal with superpowers yeah. is fun to role play in. Right. Whether you're fighting or just going down to the diner. I mean, I love that kind of stuff where, you know, you could be living in you, you living in the city of New Arcadia, see like a dragon fly overhead, and that's only gonna mildly affect what your thoughts of the day. That right. you're like, Oh hey, a dragon. Well, I still gotta go get some lean cuisine and right, right. I I lo- I kinda like that. Okay. And uh so I mean and the fact to, just the fact just interacting with people if you when you have superpowers is so much more interesting. Mm. Like imagine you know like Kyrop, you know, my my bat character, imagine him like actually having to go report some crime to the police. So you're gonna have like this seven and a half foot tall bat creature walk in. Like I'd like to make a statement, please. Right, right, right. Uh and that's kind of like one of the big themes in the campaign. I know that comes up, mm-hmm. up again and again and again. And that that's certainly very interesting, but I mean, do you feel like that it's captured the the genre? Do you feel, or do you feel like we're in just some? You no, know, I think you've captured you've captured the genre the way I like it. Okay. I mean, we have fights; we fight when we need to. Yeah, and there's always a reason for it. We don't just we don't go looking for fights, right? Which I think is actually more actually a more realistic super thing. We don't the fights come to us. We don't go to them most of the time. Yeah. And most of the time, and I like it, most of the time we are just trying to uh, get along. And uh, I think, uh, like, a lot of comic books do that. Especially, you know, like some older Spider-Man. There's a lot of stuff, it's just right. him trying to, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, he might be a, you know, have really awesome powers and be a hero, but he's still got to pay his rent, you yeah, know, yeah. work his, you know, work, he, has, has, he has a job he has to worry about. yeah. yeah. Um, do you feel like that it gets better than Mutants and Masterminds? Because I really do. Really? Yeah, I really do. I mean, okay, a lot of that stuff, um, is it just comes down to role-playing. You know, the system has very little to do with it. But I think it still does it a little bit better because it seems there's less focus on uh, fighting. Like all the advantages and powers all seem to be, and the feats all seem to focus on attacking better. Or defending better. They all seem to be stuff like oh, that. Oh, combat related. Yeah, combat related. Yeah. Wild talents, it's not so much that. I mean, you can use them for fighting, but it also gives you a lot of things to just do stuff. Well, st- I so- mean, I think the thing is, in wild talents, again, it, the useful powers, uh, you know, the third mm-hmm. category, it's whatever is not attacking or defending. And that's literally what would you want for a superpower? What is that going to be? And because of that, there's no like you said, there's no there's no feats or anything like that mm-hmm. in wild talent. So the character can be as combat oriented or as yeah. non combat and still spin and uh, like yeah. like one like I, one one person he is a very low level power of like true eidetic memory. And uh, you know he and I, and I love it was a mute, it was a wild talent game I had heard of. And that was like one of his like he just spent a very few points on this, but used it. And he was a court stenographer who didn't have a typewriter. He just sat there and uh, if anyone else uh, like was like Rick, could you play like, play that back? And he just recites verbatim what the person said, and that's why he took it. And he's that's a huge part of his character. There's not a lot of those kind of powers in mutants and masterminds that that does itself. I mean, there's some obviously, right? I mean, there's a lot of characters, I think like established, uh, comic book characters that wouldn't work and mm-hmm. that you couldn't make in, you know, these, in these kind of games. Um, and you know, certainly a lot of the more wacky or not even wacky, but just sort of, you know, people that don't punch each other for a living, you know, mm-hmm. uh, are, and those, some of the, some of the best characters, I don't know. Maybe that's just me though. So, uh, 
But yeah, that the court stenographer is a good example of that. So, um, but sorry. but you know, and I, I know eidetic memory is a feat, but you know this one, but. It was actually done as a power, as a useful, just a useful power, mm-hmm. which to me makes more sense. That, you know, it's not just eidetic memory. It's like, com- it's like computer hard drive perfect re- recall. Mm-hmm. With and it just, I think it does work better because you know, someone says I like he says he has a photographic memory, like which I think is still a little bit different than complete and utter recall. Right. Which, but actually, you can differentiate that. You can make those two different things in Wild Talents. You can have like you know a you know you can have after like a uh, one of those advantages that you know not like a a uh, permission but mm. one of those one of those kind of intrinsic things oh yeah and just have eidetic memory be one which means yeah. you just happen to have an eidetic me- or you can make it a power right you have that option right and you could tie it to different you can you can attach things extras mm-hmm. to it which define it in more specific ways you know specific flaws like you can only use it on Tuesdays or you can always or it's like or an it's if attached then. to yeah exactly or attached to a specific gadget or something like that so uh yeah no i think that that definitely helps uh the the cause <laughs> or the, mm-hmm. the the uh game and uh, and i love that you actually start thinking about what powers would be interesting as well not just like how can i inflict more damage how can I not get hit by more damage? Right. Um, yeah, especially, yeah, whenever, when all you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, I guess. Mm-hmm. That, that's kind of the same syndrome. Um, if you have characters that uh, do these kind of things, then, you know, like, that's all they're going to do is fight. If all their abilities are in fighting, then they'll fight because that's all they can do. Like, I think, you know, it's like one of the comics uh, I read is Invincible. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the characters, um, his girlfriend, uh ruby red or something or like not ruby red but like her or um god what is it Uh, i can't think of her name anyways her powers are kind of like green lantern is she makes Mm -hmm. constructs or she reassembles molecules into things and she can kind of do whatever she wants with them uh and so for a while she fights villains for you know does Mm -hmm. typical superhero things but then she's like screw this i'm gonna go off to africa and just help people and i'm gonna Mm -hmm. build cities and i'm gonna be you know doing this and like in what if her character was defined immune to masterminds it sounds like she wouldn't be able to do that really well because her power is like you punch things you don't make things actually yeah the create objects power they you know they pretty much say that it's you know, it's it, it it is basically just like the Green Lantern power. You create objects that you know that just do things, but it's mainly but it's mainly for uh, attacking or defending. Right. That's if all the rules are uh, there mm-hmm. to support. But in Wild Towns, you can say create useful objects that are permanent that exist outside of your thing. You know, so that's that power is ridiculously easy to define in Wild Towns as an as a useful power, not an attacking or not a defending power. So it's just you know it's there. So deal with it. So yeah, actually. Um, a shapeshifter character. I actually just for Wild Towns. I designed a part of the thing. Like I, the way I kind of designed him was a uh, that his clothing and anything he was carrying didn't change with him. So if he turned into something much bigger, he would rip right out of his clothing, which you know could get expensive. So I actually had a create object clothing, hmm. which it was a pretty pretty low low power. But I you know just as very, very specific. I could create nothing but. A, a a simple out, a simple outfit, so I'm not arrested as soon as it's over. <laughs> right, 
So, uh, so there you go. You have that kind of level of specificity that you don't see in it, and it's a lot easier to manage than hero. Uh, so, if you have any questions, of course, in our next segment, we will have. Gre- I'll be talking to Greg Stolze about the creation from the, yeah, from the creator's mouth. Yeah, from the creator's mouth, uh, how he created the game mechanics, how he some advice on running the games in specific situations, uh, like running fights. Um, we also talk about a few other things, including his fiction. Uh, some of it, like some of the work he's working on his Kickstarters. He's the one who came up with the ransom ga- ransom game model. Did you know that? Like, I did know. Yeah. That. So uh, we owe him a lot. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, um, we will have all that uh, on there next. And then of course we have shout outs, letter, and anecdotes. It'll be fun. And hi, this is Ross Bain with the Roleplay and Public Radio. I'm with Greg Stolze, uh, designer for Wild Talents and many other fine games uh, and some others, too. And fiction and uh, writer. So we'll be talking about his fiction, uh, but primarily Wild Talents. So, Greg, tell us uh, the history of Wild Talents. I think, I mean, I know it comes from Godlike, the World War II superhero RPG, but um, that's that's about all I know of its, you know, lineage. Well, once upon a time, long ago, uh, Dennis Detwiller had this idea that he wanted to do a gritty superhero game in World War II. And he uh, he talked to John Tynes. He's like, who would write good rules for this? And Tynes recommended me, uh, which worked out, turned out working out well for everyone. Uh, so at that time, um, I was doing a lot of work for White Wolf on Hunter uh, the Reckoning. And I, I distinctly remember that the genesis of what became the one role engine sort of arose from my thoughts as I was writing rules for uh, for a storyteller in which I was trying to figure out what's the mechanical difference between requiring more successes and just changing the target number. Uh, I think that one was the target number seven, right? Right, this is the old world of darkness. Yeah, so sometimes it would be, oh, well, this is really difficult, so the target number's nine. And then other times it would be, oh, this is really difficult, you have to get three successes. And I'm like, well, which is harder? I don't want to do the math and figure that out. And uh, I pry. it's possible that I asked one of the developers there, I'm like, well, is there some kind of difference between, well, in this, when it means this, you change the target number, and when it means that, you change the number of successes? But no, it seemed to be pretty much just however the rules uh, the rules designer was feeling that day, or <laughs> what the the line developer you know had his preference for one or the other, and so that put the idea in my head that you could have different axes of success, and that if you got a whole bunch of successes, that could mean one thing, or if you got a really super high success, that could mean a different thing, and you can see how this you know, evolved into the one roll engine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but all that was still in the back of my mind when Dennis came to me and said, you know, want to design some rules for Godlike? And I said, sure. Uh, the other thing that I was really on about at that time was button men. The, uh, Oh, who, who designed that? Was that James Ernest? I that think. Sounds right. I give me one second to look this up. <laughs> well, at the, 
I'll cut this uh cut this out in the uh, podcast. So, I got it right here in my hand because I was so impressed by uh by Button Men that I wrote about it for yeah it was James Ernest. I wrote about it for Hobby Games the Top 100. Uh, and what I really liked about Button Men uh, was the idea that a different size dice could mean more than just this is the biggest number you can get. Mm-hmm. And so I came up with this elaborate uh, system where you would have a set number of dice you were allowed to roll. Mm-hmm. But if you chose to roll like all D10s, that would mean you were only attacking. But if you chose to roll all D6s, you, you were only defending. But you could split your roll and you could have some D10s for attack and some D6s for defense and, you know, some D4s for movement and so all this stuff was going on. And uh, now, do, do, does this set of rules sound familiar to you at all? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> that, that turned into Meatbot Massacre after I had the first playtest of it and, you know, sent the rules off to, uh, you know, to Dennis. And he came back and he's like, this is a nightmare. This is terrible for the GM. He's, you know, it's, yeah, it's fun to be a player and have all this, you know, if you're only controlling one character... Yeah, sure. Deciding that, okay, out of my five open slots, I'm going to use two for movement and two for defense and one for attack. But if you're a GM, it's just a mess. Yeah, because you'd have to do that for five characters or however many. Yeah. So I, you know, and I tried it myself and I'm like, mm, yeah, that's that's actually 100 percent fair. So I kind of stuck a pin through that and, uh, you know, started again. I'm like, okay, so I need something where it's a lot easier to just, you know, roll a a batch of dice and do it. And I'd also, at the same time, as I mentioned, been fooling around with dice pools. And I thought, well, you know, wouldn't it be nifty if instead of having to remember a target number, which is changing all over the place, we just set it up so that you roll your dice pool, but when dice come up in clusters, that those are successes. If you get a pair, that's a success. Or three of a kind, that's a better success. Or if you get a pair that's really high, that's a different kind of success. And that became the one roll engine. And at first, I it, I really just had this idea and uh, started messing around with it and was delighted to discover that it worked better than I was hoping it was. And that was, uh, you know, it it really was not the product of a lot of conscious craft to come up with the central the the central idea of the one roll engine. It was just, you know, it was a little bit of a lucky fluke actually. Um, but that's where it came from. And so then we started messing about with it and seeing how can we unpack these two axes of meaning. And once you have a way to get two results out of every roll then it becomes a lot easier to compact your uh, your actions down into a single role, uh, which is when we started thinking, well, you know, maybe we can do all this with just one hit of the dice. And that's why we called it the one roll engine. So much, of the, so much of this work was uh, you already and how much of it was uh, Dennis, did Dennis folk in Godlike focus just on the setting and the, the characters and did you focus on the mechanics or the did... division was pretty stark. The uh, characters and setting were all Dennis. The uh, mechanics were pretty much all uh, the core mechanics. I will say were all me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the guys at Hawthorne Hobgoblin who were publishing it then uh, were putting up stuff for, uh, well, what about this special case? What about that special case? What about this particular power? How do we handle that? And Dennis had a lot of, uh, of stuff that he wanted to specifically, you know, address because, you know, he had the ideas that, okay, well, I want people who make impossible gadgets and I want it to work just like this. And he, uh, you know, it's like, well, and I want there to be ways for even people with, you know, totally crappy powers to mess with the people who have totally awesome powers. And that was the willpower duel. Right. The kind of the Highlander thing where they, they can sense each other and then they can battle each other through their wills. So Uh, even the guy who's, you know, superpower is I can take anything that is blue and turn it purple. And that's all (laughs) I can do is still way better off than a typical soldier when he's up against the guy whose power is I can take anybody living and turn them dead. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. The, the normal soldier with no superpowers is just like, oh, wait, I fall within his categories. Well, shoot. And the guy who, you know, our turns blue to purple guy can fight the power off. Right. And he has nothing better to spend his willpower on anyway. I mean, exactly. He's probably got a lot of points left over for because he bought such a bozo power <laughs> um that's uh there's a few things that come up when uh with the story um you know, actually recently i was on the drunk and the ugly podcast and they did a, a answer the their listener emails uh questions about the game and one of them was about game design and this listener asked about what is the math you know like how much you know mathematical work basically should i put in my game design how much time do I, should i spend doing this and you know from my understand you know from everything i've read and everything i've seen is that you know there is a very uh low amount of work that the uh uh character or that designers do in term usually in rpgs uh and your story about the world of darkness kind of sort of solidified that um, I mean, there, there may be, you know, World of Darkness rules designers who had a, you know, deep seated, you know, set of cal- carefully calculated plans that I just didn't see because I wasn't at, you know, uh, line developer level or what have you. But certainly from from where I was at, it appeared to be a lot of, oh, well, you know, just we'll get it right. We'll uh, we'll eyeball it. Um, I do know that there are people who do a lot of math analysis and that that is part of their process. Um, but that's not a skill I have. Uh, if I did have it, I probably would do more of it. I've got uh, this board game that I was kind of, uh, uh, you know, poking with a sharpened stick to see how it would twitch. And uh, it, as I was you know, working on it, I'm like, OK, clearly there needs to be a lot more of this type of piece and a lot fewer of this other type of piece uh, based on, you know, the special abilities that the pieces had. And, and so in order to balance that, if I knew a bunch of math, I could probably calculate it out. But instead, what I'm going to wind up doing is just sloshing the numbers around until I get something that looks right. And then I'll play through that and see if it plays right. And this probably costs me a lot of, uh, of time in the long run. Um, because I can't, uh, you know, just do the math to get a better, a better guideline. But on the other hand, you can get there just by testing it in play and seeing what works and what doesn't, because that's what's going to happen. You're, 
you know, that's what's going to ruin your game if it's broken is people are going to break it in actual play. They're not going to break it by mathematically analyzing it. Right. Yeah, I think that that does seem to be, you know, kind of the normal. We'll, we'll, we'll see how it works in, you know, in in the field, I sent, uh, essentially, I guess, uh, instead the of... The last rocket you sent up blew up, Greg. <laughs> uh, well, fortunately, RPG design is a little cheaper than building rockets, but... Yes. Um, one another thing that you mentioned is uh, Meat Bot Massacre, and that's, you know, one... I think, isn't that the first Ransom game model... That was the first one I ransomed. Yes. Um, as far as I know, the first one anyone ransomed. Right. Why don't you, could you? I know this is a little divergent, but you know this is RPPR. You know has had several ransoms now. Uh, in fact, we're just about to. I'm just about to release my first standalone RPG called Killsplosion, uh, which ha, is was financed through an RPPR. You know, uh, ransom model uh, through Kickstarter. Oh, you're, you're just taking everything from public radio. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You know. Uh, I just need the tote bags. So uh, when, when will I get to speak with Melba Lara, please? <laughs> um, so could you talk a little bit about uh, the the process of the ransom game model uh, for those? Uh, well, part of it was, you know, I'm I'm sure that listening to national public radio uh, growing up, uh, as my mom had it on in the car when she was driving me to uh, all over the place, uh, probably you know, sank it into my unconscious that, oh, well, one way you can do things is to say to people, you like this thing I have, maybe you could pay for it so that you can have the thing. <laughs> uh, but mostly where it came from, uh, at the time, I did not uh, see a lot of magazines on, because uh, normally, uh, back when I was starting out, if I'd written Meatbot Massacre, I would have pitched it to Shadis Magazine and said, hey, look at this great thing. Or pitched it to the familiar as, you know, hey, look, you can stick this in the middle of your magazine and people will have a whole game. And they probably would have gone for it. But both of those uh, kind of faded from the scene. And I'm like, wow, there's there's not really a home for this. I was thinking, you know, it's not long enough and involved enough to have a... Uh, big book printed up about it. And I don't want to make it complicated just to pad out the page count to make it worth doing. Um, so what I, I, I was kind of stumbling across the idea of, well, I need a way to gauge demand. Uh, the other thing was that this was back when the idea of selling PDFs over the internet was still this new idea. And people were unsure of how much of a, uh, a chunk piracy was going to tear out of them. And I, you know, I didn't want to have my work, you know, have one guy pay for my, my work and then give it away to 500 other people. So I thought, well, on one hand, piracy is, is a gigantic pain and I don't want to have to deal with it. And I don't want to have to, uh, you know, construct a secure website. I don't know how to do that. I don't want to have to figure out how to accept credit cards. Oh, it sounds like work. <laughs> and, and at the same time, there was this tiny voice in the back of my head saying, and you know, nobody who hates your game is going to pirate it. The people who pirate your work are ironically the people who like your work. And I'm like, and I, I, I wish they were taking my money, my, my work and giving it away to people who aren't giving me money. But on the same time, you don't want to alienate people and, uh, you know, who you don't want to alienate people who like your stuff. 
even if you don't like what they're doing with your stuff. So it was a um, it was a kind of a tightrope act to to walk. And I thought, well, I suppose that if I could figure out some way to get paid before giving it away, then piracy no longer becomes a problem. Piracy is just distribution after that. If, you know, I put it out as, uh, you know, an open work free for everyone. Well, now the pirates are, are doing me a favor by giving it to everyone. And so the uh, I'd actually in college kind of experimented with, OK, well, I'll, you know, put out uh, this piece of fiction and say, if you really like this, send me five bucks. And I did not get a lot of people sending me five bucks that way. Uh, and one guy even, you know sent an email saying, well, you've, you've, you've screwed yourself because you've given us the ending before we pay for it. And I'm like, well, okay. So the lesson here is that people are more willing to pay for something they don't have than pay for something they already have. And I suppose that makes a lot of sense. So adding all that together, I, I had this idea that, well, okay, I will ask people to pay for something that they don't have, and when I've gotten paid, then they can have it, and so can everyone else. And that way, I'll get the money. I won't have to worry about setting up a secure website or doing uh, digital rights management or managing pay, uh, credit card payments or anything. And it worked. Um, I was able to take this... Uh, this medium-sized project, project that otherwise I couldn't have uh, couldn't have released or gotten paid for, and I was able to release it and get paid for it. And I presume people are still downloading it today. Oh, you, so, I, do you not keep uh, server uh, stats on it, or do you just? Uh, I should, of... but that's again <laughs> one of those things that's under. I don't do web pages very well. I gotcha. Um, and it's interesting. Already, yeah, it would be interesting, uh, but. It's already it's out in the wild. So uh, the uh, the guy who really pushed me to release Meatbot Massacre uh, was Daniel Solis, who now has you know taken everything I had to uh, to teach him about uh, ransoming games and done it much better than me. So the uh, the student has surpassed the master there. Um, but yeah, Ed, you know he was just really super fired up about Meatbot Massacre and thought it sounded like a really fun game. He he's like, you got to find a way to release this. And I'm like, I don't know. It's one of those things. Like, you got to find a way to release this. And so I eventually did. Uh, so that was, yeah, that was all, you know, I, the innovation came because Daniel Solis was kicking me up the staircase. Uh, and he recently did uh, happy birthday robot, uh, happy birthday robot and Doe pilgrims of the flying temple. And um, I'm trying to think he's got a couple other things he's working on. If yeah. you uh, follow his, his uh, follow him on Twitter, he's always got uh, a bunch about five projects up in the air uh, at once. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, we'll put a link to his uh, website so you, or his blog so you can take a look at it. He's got a ta uh, does he do the art or does he uh, for his work? I think he does some of it. He does the layout and he also contracts for uh, some of the for yeah. some of his art. So he's he's got a real a real gift there uh, in his his visual sense. He's the guy who did the beautiful beautiful layouts and uh, for Rain and the covers for all the supplements. 
So he's he's got the advantage that he can make stuff look really really appealing. That that is a that is a slight advantage. <laughs> um, so uh, with with this little tangent, uh, I think that that kind of summarizes uh, the, the the origin. I mean, at first, of course, you use fundable.org, and then that company went away. Now you're you're on Kickstarter as well. Um, yes. Do you have any Kickstarters going on right now? What? Do you have any Kickstarters? I do. Right now, I am uh, finishing up on one called Seven and Seven, and the deal with that, it's going to be done in about a week. Okay. Uh, and I released a novel called Switch Flipped, and uh, following the imp- the perverse, you know, it, it was like one part of my brain asked the other part of my brain, "What's the?" St- stupidest project I could work on. (laughs) The other part of my brain said, well, that would be taking that novel you released that sold so-so and writing a sequel to it that only makes sense if you've read the book. (laughs) So that you take your small market segment and just cut it down to everyone who wants a, a, you know, who wants more. Right. And, and, you know, I became obsessed with doing that and wrote this 10,000 word novella, uh, that sort of builds on the characters in Switch Flipped. And so I put that up for Ransom. And the reason I think it's been doing pretty well, it's it's actually cleared and then some, Yeah, uh, is that it's one over of over $1,300 right now. So That's correct, sir. And, and boy, would I love to hit 14. But <laughs> uh, I think a lot of the reason that it's doing so well is that one of the things you can get for pledging is a copy of Switch Flipped. So... I'm hoping to bring more people in to, you know, switch flipped fanhood right. uh, along with, you know, the people who are already there. Yeah. So I've got that going. Uh, next, I'm probably going to do uh, a like three or four hundred dollar one for a short story called Falling. Um, I don't know how closely you follow my my Kickstarters, but I did a short story called Shrimp. Um, about two months ago, I saw it. I didn't. Uh, I didn't contribute. I, I I haven't read it, but I, I did see it. Uh, you yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I saw the Kickstarter. I do follow your Kickstarters to see what you're up to. So. Shrimp was uh, uh, something of a, a departure. Uh, I've been. I, I tell people it's a literary short story in that there are no cyborg vampires in it. Uh, it is a story that is entirely about people who live in the suburbs and go to a martial arts school. And it's based on my decades of living in the suburbs and going to a martial arts school. So it, it doesn't have, you know, my hallmark weirdness and, uh, horrendous violence and, and, uh, uh, you know, kind of phantasmagorical fantasy horror stuff. It's just a story about ordinary folks. Um, but that said, you know, people have been very positive about it. And uh, so I'm I'm hoping to do a bunch of stories uh, involving a bunch of people who are connected, who are very different people, but connected only by attending the same judo and jujitsu school. I see. Uh, so the next one is another story in that. Well, uh, we'll put a link up to it on the next uh, whenever you get that out too. So, cool. Um, so let's get down to the meat of the interview, which is of course Wild Talents. Um, yeah, my my throat's starting to get dry already. <laughs> uh, sorry, but um, Wild Talents is a 
sort of setting free universal superhero game where you can design your own superpowers and characters uh and uh characters are built using a point system you know you spend points to raise your attributes your skills and gain superpowers now um you know, we at RPPR, a lot of listeners have been following the campaign I've been running, the Heroes of New Arcadia, and we've been sort of going creeping up in power. Uh, and I've found a lot of interesting, you know, challenges running a superhero game that are unique to the genre that you n- don't necessarily see in a you know D and D game, a mystery game, a sci fi game. Uh, so overall, like first off, well, why don't you just give your basic advice for anyone who's running wild talents what do you for somebody who's setting down starting a game in wild talents regardless of the setting what advice would you like to impress upon them first okay uh well first off i'd like to clarify that uh if you get the big thick hardback wild talents book it does come with a setting oh yeah that's right that's true uh the world gone mad uh the expansion of godlike where uh you know after world war ii things just get weirder and crazier it's uh, is it, it would it, um, it's not part of godlike continuity, but it it is it connect it's sort of it's thematically similar, right? It's an extension. No, it, it comes straight out of godlike continuity. Okay. So it's an extension. Okay. Um, uh, some of the the godlike rules sort of fall away as people become more and more comfortable with being you know wild talents and not just the sort of restricted talents of godlike. But okay. Uh, advice for running and playing wild talents. Um, one is that, well, first off, Ken's stuff in wild talents about the four color axis of building your setting or uh, of containing the expectations of your setting mm. are very, very useful. If you tell your players that, you no, know, it, it, it gives you it gives you sort of an agenda of stuff to get clear on. It's like, okay, you know, this setting is going to be medium high black. So that's, you know, it's, it's moral clarity is fairly high. I, you know, this is not going to be a, a thing where, you know, you have to choose between, uh, you know, to, to ally with the baby eating demon to save the world. You know, there won't be, you know, it's not going to be like Call of Cthulhu, where you have to constantly grapple with, you know, victory by atrocity. Or you can, uh, you know, reduce that very low and say, okay, no, yeah, you guys are going to have superpowers, but you're also going to be facing total conundrums of, you know, okay, well, if the only way to save this population is by mind controlling them and basically taking away all their personal sovereignty, and turning them into little clockwork oranges, is that the right thing to do? Or is it better to let them struggle through and die, but at least they'll die on their feet as human beings instead of surviving as your little brainwashed minions? So that would be a low black game. And uh, other metrics are uh, blue, which is sort of the wahoo-ness of it, Um he gives uh, Wonder Woman's Invisible Plane as an example of something that's a high blue thing. Or, uh, you know, when you've got aliens and Atlanteans and super intelligent apes all running around in the same setting, that's high blue. If you've got only one miracle exception and everything else flows out of that, that's low blue. 
Right. Like, I think the difference would be, like, say, the TV show Heroes was very – it was low blue because everything had one – source and all the characters none of the characters wore costumes for the most part right and then one and a high blue would be like the main marvel or dc universe where there's especially like silver age i'd yeah. say that there was there was a lot of different plates spinning during the silver ages for those <laughs> fair um, enough. so those will give you a chance to set some expectations even before any points get spent um another suggestion i have um, which some people may may kind of look askance at, but this is how uh, I've wound up doing it when I've run Wild Talents games, is I ask my players, okay, what what powers do you want your characters to have, and I will min-max them for you. You know, I, the GM, will set this up, and that way the GM's characters and the player's characters are all built by the same person with the same understanding of the rules, with the same sort of tolerances and uh, and expectations. That, uh, and that, that requires a fair amount of trust in your GM, but Wild Talents is a game where in the pursuit of giving people the freedom to make the powers they want, a lot of trust is just necessary. Period, I mean, yeah. One of, one of the examples in the book is, okay, we're going to talk you through how to build a guy whose power is I can turn off the sun and that, you know, yeah, that, and I'm trying to remember how much it, it costs. It to, was pretty high. It was a few hundred. It's points. not cheap. Turn yeah. a, destroying the solar system of all life is, is not an inexpensive power to have as it turns out, but uh, certainly it's not, uh, you know, it's not off the table and uh, you know, there would always be, you know, you always could run a game, which is, okay, Sun Quencher. Uh, <laughs> you know, how, how does Sun Quencher handle a bank robbery? Say, put that money back or I'll destroy all life on Earth and it won't be on me, it'll be on you. I think most people would actually prefer the bank robbers in that scenario. Yeah, sounds like uh, a sensible tax. <laughs> uh, the... So that's so another, another option yeah is uh, to do that. Uh, you can also restrict your players and say, you know, if you're a GM and you're setting things up, it's perfectly kosher to say, all right, look, these powers are off the table. I'm not going to let you have uh, mind reading because that will just let you resolve every plot I throw at you way too fast. It will be the counselor Troy syndrome where at the beginning of every game, I'll have to establish a reason that the mind reader player can't just figure out what's going on. And then the <laughs> mind reader player is going to feel uh, cheated because, oh, well, why did I pay for all these mind reading powers if all it does is soak up points that the other side has to spend in order to counteract them? So rather than put up with that heartbreak, I think it's it's easier for a GM to just say, oh, please, no mind readers this time, okay? <laughs> um that uh, that's actually yeah that uh, your your point about making powers uh, having the one person make powers that was definitely uh, a hurdle we had when I was running uh, Heroes of New Arcadia I let the players do it and people had different levels of knowledge of the system and you know especially like in the first uh, very first game there was some you know I said it was kind of like Marvel street level you know Spider Man esque <laughs> and then somebody had the power to basically. Uh, cosmically alter the oxygen in the area to suffocate his foes and, you know, uh, that, you know, to knock them out. And, 
the other one through air conditioners at you know normal human villains. Uh, <laughs> so there were uh, and the other one summoned a giant fire demon to you know burn them. So uh, there there was a bit of systems in in, in cognitivity. Uh, you know this is why you have to this is why you have to check the math and this is why the GM <laughs> has to be skilled at the the leadership element of saying well. You might want to tone that down a bit. Yeah, we, we yeah we we got over it, but that first session in particular was pretty uh, uh, not very immersive, I guess we'd say. Ah. Uh, uh, to, you you can listen to the actual play. You could read the comments of the site. I mean, they're <laughs> they're they're pretty ridiculous. Um, but uh, you know, one thing that you know comes up uh, frequently when I'm running games also uh, is balancing con like you mentioned with this you know the mind reading thing uh, balancing uh conflicts for the characters like running fight scenes uh between uh the heroes and the bad guys or coming up with other non-threats and i've had some success with using threat you know dice pool uh dice pools like you know using a fight using a dice pool for fires you know oh there's a building on fire you have to spend you know you use your actions to reduce this dice pool down to zero to put the fire out Right. Um, but what I think that was one of Ben Baugh's suggestions. Yeah, I got it. I got the idea for monsters um, from mm -hmm. Bigger Bads, and I've used it. I, I didn't know uh, that. Did that originate from Bigger Bads, or was that something from another One Roll Engine game? Uh, I don't remember where it turned up first. I know that it was one of uh, Ben's innovations because I remember reading it and going, "God damn it! Why didn't I think of that?" <laughs> um, that, that, yeah, exactly. It, it's it's such a great idea. It should be. That's the great thing about the One World Engine games. It's like, oh, there's a great idea. Let's throw it in all of them because it, it makes all of them better. So. Well, and and what I've found, and I can't if I maybe if I had uh, you know more mathematics understanding, I could explain why this is. But the rule set seems to take a punch pretty well. That you can throw these weird variations, and it doesn't you know it doesn't blow up. Uh, it, it will take quite a bit of home ruling without disintegrating under the pressure. So you may find, you know, if you fool around with it at home, which, you know, a lot of gamers do, if you house rule it, mm -hmm. it's not going to come apart at the seams and fall out of the sky flaming. Um, and recently, this is, I, I'm going to go off on a, a tangent for just, a, I'll try to keep it brief. <laughs> uh, we got my, my 10 year old son Monopoly for uh for christmas and so we've been playing a ton a ton a ton of monopoly and i find myself appreciating it on a much deeper level than i you know did when i was when i was young because i'm now looking at it as a game designer i'm like oh that's really that's quite clever that's elegant that's you know you you don't see how it's working on you but it, it is and uh then I read and, you know, then I read online about people are like, doesn't Monopoly take like eight hours to play, which is addressed in the uh, the current ten dollar Monopoly set rules has this this little it's like a, a fact. And, you know, one of the things in there is you know, if you find it's taking too long to play, that may be because you're doing it with um, with house rules like the house rule that if you land on free parking you get all the money that's been collected from taxes, that'll make that game last forever. <laughs> and as soon as I read that, I'm like, oh yeah, I can see exactly how that takes the limited resource, uh, the cash that's coming in at the rate of $200 every time a player passes go, 
and you know going out at a much higher rate generally as you spend money to buy properties and now all that money that was leaving the system is stuck in the system so of course the game can't reach an end because you know it doesn't end until people run out of money and if you constantly reintroduce the money to the system it'll run forever we should figure out a way to do that with the real economy. <laughs> well, I, we, I, I would suggest my house for the free for the free parking space. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm sure you could get a petition started online. You might might be able to get a couple uh, some a uh, good number of signatures uh, for that. Certainly, it sounds better than some of the ideas I've heard um, that are out there. But um, Going back to the, the to the balancing issue. Um, uh, yes. Yes, because I mean, one thing that is sort of um, emblematic of the superhero genre, I think, is the sort of the rock paper scissors aspect of it. You know, I have ice powers, I defeat Fireman, but this guy has you know earth powers, and he defeats me, or you know whatever, or you know, right, uh, right. or Waterman defeats Fireman, and then you know Electrical Man defeats Waterman, and you know so on and well, so. And it's it's yeah. a fine line to walk because nobody want, people create these superheroes because they want their character to be really cool, as with every game. Uh, and you don't want to have your character negated. So if you are, uh, you know, if your concept is, you know, I, I've got this, I, I'm the Human Torch, you don't want to be fighting the Submariner every week because, you know, oh, well, he'll just fly under, he'll just flee under the ocean and I can't go in there because it'll quench my flames and I'm boned. So my options are to either not be awesome or to, uh, you know, try and find some way around it. And a, a certain amount of finding some way around it is really fun. And, you know, this is, is where you say, oh, Truly, he's, he's showing his true heroism because even though he's been poisoned by kryptonite, he's still doing the right thing without his superpowers. And But that only that's only cool a certain number of times, and sometimes you want to let the Human Torch be the Human Torch and burn stuff. Right, right. So you need to have a uh, – as the GM, that's the, the, the art of it, is to balance the challenge. You, you want it to be challenging enough that – it's interesting without it being such a tailored straitjacket that the player feels that he's being picked on that right. you know of all of all the banks in the world the guy whose powers exist solely to block mine robs the bank in my town what are the odds of that or uh you know the the again the classic mind reading example you right, know right. why is it that every why is it that every supervillain my mind reader runs into is immune to mind reading? <laughs> uh, yeah, why don't you switch uh, supervillains with the uh, the other hero in the other city so you can all you know fight uh, be a little more effective? Uh, well, and this is the this is the argument for your playgroup is that you know okay well the reason that these these superheroes team up is that they have strengths and weaknesses and they get together so that that guy's strength covers my weakness. Uh, right. And so, yeah, you know, this does kind of make me want to set up some sort of uh, categorization where you can set it up that, OK, this is my source and will, you know, and we'll have niche protection and <laughs> it will be a, uh, you know, 
It'd be just like D and D. So basically, uh, their character classes. The GM has to custom tailor every single encounter to have some variety. Well, it, uh, helps. it uh, helps. There, you know, you can do some general stuff that you know. Okay, well, this villain is just really strong and hard to hurt, and go. Right. And not everything has to be a a cunning duel of wits where you have to figure out exactly what his weakness is, but you have to constantly change it up, and you have to constantly think about. You know, what is, uh, you know, what are my players, what do they really like? What seem to really catch their interest? What's going to really challenge them? What's going to really frustrate them? Because, you know, frustrating your players is good as long as they are eventually stop being frustrated. Right. Can't just, uh, you know, constantly give them the win without denying it first. And I'm also fine with having, uh, you know, having things go disastrously for the players. Right. Um, Definitely. Um, have you found any sort of like rules of thumb in terms of balancing encounters? You know, like in Dungeons and Dragons, you have the challenge rating system or you have the XP budget. The whole uh, thing is, is yeah. meant to be mathematically done for you. And Wild Talents is just does not have that capacity. I mean, it just uh, I think it privileges variety uh, way too much. And I think that that's to, to be artificially balanced from the outside by a guy who's removed from you by the distance of a book. And I think that's probably a factor with superhero games in general, Mm -hmm. uh, where there isn't niche protection, you know, clearly defined in a limited number of player types. So you really do just have to uh, accept some of the, the trappings of the genre, which is that no, you know, nemeses always wind up, fighting one another superman almost never fights the joker because hey why would he yeah he's got juggernaut to deal with and yet at the same time batman's on a level level with superman and the joker's on a level with batman so it doesn't quite make sense and yet somehow it still keeps going on right so uh tips for uh keeping it balanced i yeah i mean you really just have to look at what you're characters can do and what your players tend to choose and base your decisions on that and springboard your ideas off that. Um, One thing I will say is uh, I think the most successful wild talents game I ever ran was a progenitor campaign. And I came to it with no big plans. You know, I, I, for, uh, for your listeners who don't know, Mm. uh, progenitor is a wild talent setting that starts in uh, 1968 when this Kansas farm wife is sort of involved in a never explained cosmic accident that makes her nigh omnipotent. She has the a, a ton of uh, cosmic power that she can change on the fly to do just about any physical effect she wants. Uh, and no idea what she's supposed to do with this until she sees footage of the Tet Offensive in Vietnam and thinks, well, I, you know, I I have to do something because really I can do anything. So she flies off to fight in Vietnam after showing her powers off to a number of of, uh, politicians and uh, military personnel. And it's only when she's been fighting there for a month or so that People clue into the fact that anyone who survives having power, having her powers used on them 
develops powers of their own. So those military guys she showed powers to, now they have powers. Uh, the Viet Cong that she didn't instantly kill, they have powers. Uh, the people that are exposed to these other powers develop powers. And so it's like a viral contagion of cosmic energy. And it gets weaker with each succeeding generation, but also more numerous. So there's one at the top and 10 underneath her and 90 underneath them and so on and so forth downward. So what I did for my campaign was I uh, had the players come up with uh, characters who were all dying of untreatable illnesses and who were in a, uh, uh, a psychological uh, group together, a, um, what do you call it? Group therapy. Mm. And so after one of, and, and the first session was just them going through their, their lives as, you know, the, to, the brain tumor is pressing on them or as, you know, their strength is wasting away or as they're getting uh, radiation treatment to try and slow the advance of whatever it is they had. And the players, you know, went out and, of course, found the most gruesome, tragic diseases they could possibly uh, be suffering through. And then at the end of the session, one of the people who'd been exposed to uh, these energies had to developed uh, healing powers and feels that, you know, it's her duty to heal others as she herself was healed. And so she looks up uh, a, uh, you know, treatment group for critic for uh, the terminally ill and goes and heals all of them. And in the process, they are now tier four uh, progenitor characters, which gives them just Tons and tons and tons of points to play with. I, I distinctly remember saying, okay, what do you want your character to be able to do? And he's like, oh, I want him to be super strong and super fast. Okay, what else? Um, And also, like, be able to copy other people's powers? Okay, what else? <laughs> and just, you know, kept giving, yeah, okay, mind control? Sure. Invisibility? Yeah. And just piling it on, piling it on. And then I just said, okay, what are you guys going to do? It's 1968. <laughs> And just leave it. So it's a total sandbox campaign. It was a total sandbox campaign, and it wound up with them uh, murdering a insane superhero who thought he was uh, Jesus Christ returned to Earth, uh, nearly provoking Israel to, uh, you know, pushing Israel to the brink of war, uh, being investigated by the federal government, just all kinds of great stuff. And before they understood that their powers were contagious, they picked up a, a pair of hitchhikers and, you know, just used their powers to screw with them. And so then these two hitchhikers are developing superpowers. It goes on and on and on. Uh, so one of the uh, one of the things that I, I always wanted Progenitor to do was poke at the comic book trope of the villain who creates his nemesis or the hero who creates his archenemy. Mm -hmm. And Progenitor does that really well because, okay, I messed with this hitchhiker. Now the fact that he can talk people to death literally is on me. And do I go and take him out even though he's just mostly a regular guy who, you know, he was actually hitchhiking down south to be a freedom rider? 
Uh, but he's now the world's deadliest freedom rider. What do I do with this? So that was that was how I uh, how I dealt with the question of finding uh, appropriate finding appropriate challenges for superheroes. A lot of what I did was not so much a question of can you do it, but are you willing to do it? Is or, you know is it worth doing it? So I guess you would say it was a fairly low black game. A lot of what was going on moral was, dilemmas. Yeah, moral dilemmas. Okay, um, yeah. Are are you going to uh, win through atrocity? Is that if you're willing to give up anything to win, have you really won? And so yeah, uh, uh, just a ton of fun. Um, well, that, for for me anyway. <laughs> well, it sounds like the player. I mean, I would have had fun in a game like that. Um, and that seems to be mo- that's actually very remnant. Like the here's a new Arcadia. There's a lot of I, I like throwing in moral uh, dilemmas to my players. Uh, and of course they they just love that. Uh, especially <laughs> like, ah, do you team up with a supervillain? <laughs> you know, uh, to save the world. Uh, I, I did try to maneuver them into the classic scene where uh, one of them initially thinks the other is a supervillain and they fight, but the, they just wouldn't do it. I gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, I know. It, actually, in Heroes of New Arcadia, the at, at the first sort of tier of the campaign, you know, the street level thing, they they find the supervillain who's a, a clone, a flawed clone of a another supervillain, and. You know, telepathic super scientist type, and they the they they've been they've beaten up all her minions and you know foiled all of her plans, and so she sends them a message basically like, just give me time to pull out of the city, and I'll never bother you again. I won't I won't do anything else. I won't harm you. I won't harm your city. Uh, you know, I I give up, and they're like, no, she's a supervillain. Let's track her down and you know, yeah, take her down. You know, let's go her, you know, to her base and stop her for once and for all. And, Clearly, we have the upper hand. Yeah, yeah. Well, they did get a lot of NPC allies to help. Like, hey, there's a uh, that that supervillain she was cloned from, uh, genetically engineered all these, um gang members into being killers and now they're on the loose and they're just sort of wandering around and they hate her so let's recruit them and let's you know get these other people to help them uh, help us out and that actually comes up to my next question because i had this massive two session fight where i countered up there were 17 combatants in it you know 11 on the side of the players versus six supervillains and like all but two of the supervillains and like like 11 characters died in that battle like wow. it, it was a ridiculously lethal battle. People were just dying, and it was it it took two sessions drawn. It took five hours to process just because of everything that was going on. You know, because right. I had to write down everyone's action and what they got for their sets to figure out whose set would go off first. So and so this is a very you know like crossover big brawl thing. Um, do you it's have any sort of like problem to have? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what What do you do for like running fight scenes for like because spe- I found like running one supervillain, no matter how powerful, it tends to get splatted because the players can wear you know wear down all his sets through you know doing one point of damage takes off one right. off all your sets and you know you can only roll up to ten die so you can only get so many sets period and uh, unless I just make him totally invulnerable to everything. Uh, which is no fun, you know, it's frustrating. So how do you run fight scenes with, say, you know, more than two players, you know, like three or more players? I mean, 
Or, you uh, know, there's multiple combatants, you know, like six characters in a fight, PC and NPC or something like that. So. Yeah, oh, I get you. Um, one thing, it sounds like you had uh, a bunch of uh, GMCs on both sides. And that's a little bit of if the GM was running all the players allies as well as all. the. I players. think I had the player. I gave the sheets of their allies to the players to. Help. OK, so that that mitigated it somewhat. But in general, any I, I try to like lately, I've been avoiding fight scenes in general, because even if it's a standard fight, you know, four PCs, then I tend to, you know, have at least two or more bad guys to fight them so that, you know, it's a interesting fight because again, the one NPC gets splatted by five characters. Right. Um, um well, one thing I've done is to pre-roll a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Um, and just have, instead of physically manipulating the dice, I'll just have, okay, here's the numbers this guy got. And okay, he's rolling eight dice in his pool. What are the next eight numbers? Okay. There's my sets. And I'll, you know, jot those down for him, which doesn't sound like such a wonderful innovation, but it is a little bit of a, uh, a time saver. And when you're going through round after round, after round, after round, that's when you want to have your time saved. Um, if I've got GMCs on both sides, I tend to not roll for it. I, you know, we'll be of the position that, okay, so your five allies are fighting this one bad, this one high powered bad guy. And okay. They're just off on the side struggling. You know, one of them's going to pop out of this as the winner in about two or three rounds, but until that time, don't even worry about it. What are you guys doing? Um, so, uh, I, I do tend to hand wave anything where the PCs aren't hurting someone or getting hurt in, in combats. Uh, or where the PCs aren't uh, involved directly. Right. Um, so that'll that'll speed things up. Um, I'm trying to think what else. You can save a lot of time by giving your bad guys hard die powers. And, yeah. you know, now it's just going to be, okay, well, I know he's got four tens for whatever he chooses to do and don't have to roll that. Uh, you know, that's a little bit of a shorthand or you can give them, you know, wiggle dice and, and it's the same thing where, okay, yeah, you know, what's he going to do with his four tens this turn? Um, let's see what else will speed things up. If uh, generally trying to keep, all right, I'm going to back up a notch and say that wild talents lets you get very, very complicated and very, very detailed. And you can, custom tailor your powers a lot so that they work really well in this situation and are paid for by not working as well in another situation. And you can get very, very finicky with it. But I've always tried very hard to keep it so that it works just as well if you are not finicky. And so you can keep it simple. You can play the guy who is just strong and tough and he's not at a huge disadvantage against someone who has this bizarre off the wall uh innovative custom tailored ability that uh you know fits his particular backstory and situation really really well uh it, if you see the difference it I, i've tried to make it so that you can be really complicated if you want but that you don't have to make it really complicated in order to be effective um, a lot of 
games seem to reward uh, min-maxing, frankly, by making the characters more powerful. And the, ga- the, the reason you put points on it at all is because you want it, you, you want to have less of that, or you want to have that have a cost. And, uh, you know, a lot of people will instinctively lash out at the idea of optimizing a character, which I, you know, I, I find myself thinking, I think it's just great that they care that much about the game. I think it's terrific that they're interested. I think I look at a min-maxer and I'm like, yes, that is a person who wants to engage the rules. Yay. And if he gets a minor advantage out of his investment of time, effort, and expertise, well, so be it. But at the same time, you can't let it be so overwhelming, unbalancing, and uh, distorting that the rest of the game falls apart in comparison. So I've tried to make it so that if you just take the pre-generated powers that are written up in the books, that's fine. And that's the easy way. You can throw together a Wild Talents character quite quickly just by saying, okay, uh, I'm going to take some invisibility, and these are my stats and skills, and let's go. And he's functional. And another guy who takes the same amount of points and obsesses over it uh, at home for a couple hours, yeah, gets a character you can play as well. And, you know, should one player not, should one character be completely completely outclassed by the other? I don't think so. All right. Now, I, I spoke for quite a while there. Did I address your question of how to make fights go faster? I think that, I think that covers a lot, uh, a, a lot of it. I mean, I had wondered if there was any, other particular ta- like again the four on four fight you know that, that the kind of basic stuff I mean you, the pre rolling certainly addresses a lot of that um, and you know trying to have NPCs NPCs negate each other uh, sort of you know the these NPCs fight these NPCs and just remove right. from the equation um, but I, I again I just wondered if you had any personal tricks for again making it more like D and D I guess in terms of because <laughs> you know D and D for all its flaws like you put a dragon down, you know what to expect from the characters yes. for, uh, in, in a lot of ways. Um, but again, it's a superhero game, so I don't, uh, it's you know apples and You're oranges. You're always going to have the weirdness, yes. Yeah. Um, well, and another part of it is, uh, and this is deals less with the, the rules and more with the tropes, is that it's a pretty stupid guy who fights to the death when he has an option. Right. And that, you know... A lot of times I've had, you know, the villain is like, clearly I'm getting licked. I quit. Uh, I'm running away. Yeah, in my, in my, yeah, in my experience that I've tried to have villain, uh, villains run away, but the players, they don't let them if they can. I mean, it, or they the fights in so early. That actually brings up my next point, which is dealing with hard dice and attack powers, because certain, one of the things that was sort of jarring for one of my players was that he had a super strong character, a kind of man bat sort of thing, and he was the one throwing air conditioning units around and was also punching people. And, he, you know, he had hard dice in body, you know, hyper body. Yep. And so he was just straight up murdering people, like, with just punching them with enough force to, you know, uh, go through a, an engine block. So he was like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that. So um, yeah. that, there's sort of you don't see in the comics where the Hulk comes out and he's got blood up to his waist yeah. because he's been wading through mere mortals. But when you think about the kind of forces that would be in play with 
this that degree of strength is described, yeah, it would be like, uh, you know, how how many fatalities were there in that earthquake? How many fatalities were there in that Hulk versus Thor fight? Right. You can't uh, throw people through buildings without having this happen. Um, but it also got it also one thing that I've house ruled in the game. Um, I've seen it on the Cult of War, uh, the One Roll Engine Google uh, group or list. Uh, I got the idea from somewhere. Was that in this last tier of the campaign is that I've banned attack powers, including hyperbody, from having hard dice because it it seemed to me that just because you're super strong doesn't mean you are always going to connect like with the attack roll. So in if you wanted to do more, you know that I, the idea that that punch is always going to hit uh, outside of you know a ridiculous dodge or you know a hard dice defense, uh, right. it, it got to be where. Um, it, it, thematically, it just wasn't interesting, and it also made fights kind of uninteresting because the players weren't rolling. There was no variability in it. Right. Um, and, well, or or ranged attack power with hard dice abilities. Hard uh, dice may work better for um, NPCs and defense from you know a, a thematic standpoint. You know, you don't want to have to roll for your invulnerability all the time. Right. But. Uh, well, you know, and, and part of some systems address this with just the idea of being player facing, right? Have, yeah. have you? Uh, and, you know, it's just, oh, no, play, dice are for players. Other people, you know, the GM doesn't roll any dice. And I'm, I'm actually fooling around with a set of mechanics like that for Horizon, where the GM rolls nothing. But, um, you know, that's, that's still in progress. That's, right, right. Uh, I think Trail of Cthulhu does it that way. Uh, trail yes. well for trail the gumshoe system they you spend points for investigative abilities to gain bonuses and then you roll for non-investigative abilities okay. like athletics or fighting uh, and then you spend points from those pools to gain bonuses on your roll so you said there is still rolling a trail of Cthulhu but it's for non-invest you don't you know roll it to spot the clue you you roll to run away from the monster so you don't right. so um, and someone was talking about how they figured out how to do player facing D uh, D and then it's like yeah you know it's really not that hard to instead of the player rolls against the bad guy's armor class and then the bad guy rolls against the player's armor class you have the player rolls against the bad guy's armor class, and then the player rolls a dodge against the bad guy's static defense. And, you know, that this makes it much easier for the DM, who now doesn't have dice all over the place messing his stuff up. Right, right. Um, but, and, you know, the way to tweak, to steer wild talents in that direction is to have hard dice, uh, you know, on the, the GM side of the screen. Um, the other way around it, yeah, is pretty much going to be hard dice on the defense um you know is is the way you get around hard dice on the attack or uh you know so much go first that you know the enemy just never is within range of the hulk's deadly fists right um the other one oh is i'm trying to remember how the the flaw works uh it's brute frail where uh, no, it's escaped me. I'd have to look it up. Okay. But uh, is one that is, you know, okay, yeah, the, uh, I think it, the way it works is that the super strong guy always goes last. And so if you haven't gotten away from him by then or dodged him, <laughs> you're screwed. You're screwed. But you I had I that chance. Yeah. With that one. 
Um, one thing, uh, and it, you know, as I mentioned, we're, we're the the here's an Arcadia campaign. I've been sort of raising the point levels for the characters as they progress onward. Uh, and right now, I'm doing sort of a uh, you know cosmic tier where they're all 500 point. You know, world they're they're the authority or the Avengers basically. Yeah. And they're they're going around solving global you know problems, and because right now the world is on the verge of civil war, like in the setting, the, the world is on the uh, verge of war between the parts of society that want to embrace superhumans and metahuman powers and aliens. And, you know, you become a transhumanist superhuman based society, like the basic, you know, incongruity in the, uh, the Marvel universe is that they have flying cars, but only the fantastic four get them. Why don't they build a factory and give everybody a flying car? Why doesn't it become a science fiction setting? Yeah, and so that's a jerk. Yeah, well, he is a jerk, but, you know, <laughs> he's still a capitalist, I, I assume, you know, he is. But then on the other so there's that side that, want to change, that wants to change everything and, you know, become this, you, you know, super-powered utopia, basically. And then the other side is the status quo, where we're like, we're going to lock everything down and keep the thing the way, you know, normal humans are still going to be in charge forever. And so... Unring the bell. Step two: put the juice back in the orange. Exactly, and that that so that's uh they they well they're they'll, they'll still have superhuman powers, but just in their military and police. So they you know obviously more of a totalitarian uh thing, and so that's how the, the campaign. Yeah. Exactly. So the players are the the ones that can sort of guide. They're they're deciding how this is going to shake down. Whether the world is just going to have a cold war, whether they're going to you know somehow merge, or if there's going to be a big bloody you know kind of conflict. And so I'm I'm finding you know at 500 points, there's a lot of things that are different about it. For example, I can't really have characters make basic roles anymore. Like uh, roll science. I have five hard dice in my in brain you know in mind. So I. Uh, I know everything. I have, you know, I got six ten. I rolled five and I have five hard dice. So I got six ten. So, what can you tell me? Like, oh, okay. Uh, well, you know everything about this topic. So, yeah. um, have you had much experience running games at this level? And well, that was uh, the uh, the aforementioned progenitor game was close to that. I mean, we had uh, this physically perfect uh, power cloner. Mm -hmm. um we had a uh, a super genius who was uh uh unbelievably persuasive and you know we had a uh a telepath who could also turn invisible um so uh, you know high high grade telepath who could also turn invisible so they were you know incredibly influential you know if they could get exposed to someone who was just a normal person, they could eventually talk him away, talk him around to their point of view. And so part of it was, you know, okay, yeah, you know, people who have been persuaded to believe things that they normally wouldn't, that's not good for them at all. So, you know, every time you use this on someone, you realize you're gambling not with your sanity, but theirs. Uh, so, but yeah, you really just have to, uh, you have to accept that you have to accept the, the power of the, the players. It, 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 you, you're the one who gave them 500 points. <laughs> this can't be any big surprise to you. You know, no, there's no, no. so much hyper strength you can buy. Right. So, uh, you know, you can put people on the other side. You can play the, you know, Superman game of, okay, yeah, uh, 
you can deal with any situation if you're there, but you can't be everywhere at once. Um, but by and large, yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, I'm remembering the epic D and D book where, which I, I don't have, but I remember flipping through it once and, you know, it's, it's like, okay, yes, here is, you know, what epic spells look like. You just, you know, okay. Everyone under third level within a hundred miles turns into a frog. Right. Or like, I've well, invented a new, I've created a new species or a no, new, you know, dimension. Uh, yep. Or I have taken someone and nailed them to the sky, which puts them in orbit around the planet, inflicting damage forever. Uh, and I think it keeps them alive somehow. It's just a the ultimate screw you spell to a bad guy. Um, and if I make a DC 100 check, I can balance and walk on a cloud. Uh, and so you have to be ready for your, uh, you know, your, your characters to do this. Right. And so again, uh, did you put any restrictions on what they could spend their 500 points on? Well, they're, they're basically upgrading their existing character. So I already knew, you know, these were the same, like the man bat, uh, he now is talking to a Mayan bat god, and that's how he has, you know, he's upgraded his powers. And, you know, the 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 guy in the robot suit got a really awesome robot suit now. And the the guy who's been experimenting on on himself, uh, actually, he went from being a guy who tried to merge magic and technology to go into a robot suit, uh, and then accidentally killed himself. So he's haunting a robot, going cloned himself a body. Uh, and now he's kind of like a, you know, plastic man kind of super scientist. And so he's had the most change, but there, and then one character who died in last con or one character had a, a dramatic uh, transformation actually he didn't die. Uh, so, you know, you, you get the idea. Um, and I, uh, for the listeners out there, I'm sorry, I'm spoiling bits about it, but we're, we're, we talk about this on the forums anyway. So, right. um, but I, I have a sense of their powers, but, um, just again, like if there were any like mechanical or you know tricks or anything for 500 point characters that wouldn't necessarily work at 250 points. Uh, I don't. I, I think that's beyond the point of mechanics and tricks. Is yeah. that you know you you are at the point where you've basically given them the keys and said, okay, now you're in the driver's seat, and where are you going to take this? Yeah. So you just have to be willing to you know extend their actions farther than they wanted them to go and to have, you know, the natural consequences of individuals with the power of the Warsaw Pact stumbling across, <laughs> you know, your your world. And yeah. you know, part of this is that I, I tend to set things up without any clean, easy, perfect resolution. Right. You know, I, I tend to visualize when I'm setting up an adventure, I'm like, okay, so if they do this, then the bad fallout is going to be a b and c and if they do this other thing then the bad fallout is going to be x y and z right and i am generally fairly straightforward i'm like oh well you know if you do that you might get a and d or maybe something else who knows and uh, generally my players surprise me quite a bit with their ability to either come up with a third option that i didn't foresee but where but usually i can uh, take whatever my bad fallouts were and pick a little from each that that makes sense or else they you know do a really good job of mitigating the blowback and so that becomes you know the challenge is not do i get what i want the challenge becomes do i get what i want at a price that i'm willing to pay right so 
there is there is one thing I have found um, is I mean yeah obviously the moral consequences and that that's been a campaign theme from the beginning uh, but there is um, one other thing I found like every uh, in, in between each tier of the campaign each sort of major thematic section we've had I've had uh, another person run one shots of it and we call this the giant size or the annual <laughs> um, and keeping up with the comic book theme and in the latest one where we we got to test our, and I have my own player character for these sections since I get to play for once uh, yeah. we all they they all had 500 point characters we all had 500 point characters and the GM had an ingenious solution which was we had to go to this magical realm basically that in order to solve this major crisis to save millions of people from you know uh, uh, death and from you know being destroyed um we had to go through this realm but the, the magical realm had very unique properties in that it had this sort of reciprocal defense system where if ever anytime you used an ability like it would gain the the characters around you, the people, the natives of that realm would suddenly take on characteristics of that thing. So if you have electricity powers, the first time they'd gain a slight bonus to their stats. And then if you use it like three times on the same set of people, they would gain electricity powers. So uh, you, uh, it was essentially like the GM was very upfront. He's like, this it's like Skyrim. Everyone levels up with you. So uh, you know, like a video game. So, like, you can't just go around beating up level one peasants because eventually they'll be level fifty peasants uh, with immunity to being beaten. So, um, or they'll be as good the as. The solution is that if you strike someone in this realm, you must kill them immediately. Right. Exactly. And oh, good traveler, I faced him with my eye beams. <laughs> but the people around him, like the butterflies and the rabbits and the wolves, would also <laughs> gain laser powers. So, like. <laughs> Uh, even not the ones you're directly interacting with. So we were afraid to use our own superpowers. Like my character could teleport, but we couldn't just. on myself. Yeah, exactly. So that's, I mean, you can only do that so many times, but it's kind of like another comic tradition where the characters are thrown into some new setting or world or area where their powers don't work the same way or there's some risk to using them, you know, like the Mojo universe and uh, Marvel or, you know, uh, Mitzelplex or, you know, the, the little imp in DC, you know, changing everything up on everybody um, and, and that kind of thing. So that's uh, obviously I can't do that every single session. Here's why your powers are total. It would know, be like the mind reader thing only for the entire group. Here's why none of your powers work this entire session. Uh, but again, every yeah. now and then, every now and then. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the canonical events in uh, in Progenitor is that there is a giant battle in I think it's in 1998 or 1999 where she actually gets knocked into a coma and while she's in the coma everyone else's superpowers conk out which you know the world starts to uh, you know to erode that there were governments that only maintained order by virtue of having super geniuses at the helm. And once they're just ordinary folks, the political, those political systems start falling down. And I, I would love to run a, a game sometime where I could blindside the players with that, where it's, you know, like, okay, yeah, all this craziness is going on, but you've got superpowers and that's, you know, and now it's the twilight of the superpowers. They're all shut off. You're just your regular old selves again, but so are all the bad guys you've been fighting all this time. <laughs> uh, everyone, so it becomes Call of Cthulhu, basically. Yes. Let's get our shotguns and dynamite. And... 
<laughs> Kill the cultists, uh, basically. Yep. And then the powers come back. And then the powers so come back. When she wakes up again. So before we end this interview, uh, we uh, also want to talk to you about your fiction. I know uh, recently you wrote a novel, Mask of the Other, which is the Cthulhu mythos and, uh, well, you know, horror and set in Iraq. Uh, you know, it starts out in Iraq. It starts out in Iraq. Um, what, uh, well, what do you want to talk about? What, what, what of your works? Uh, we've already talked about the, the ransom, the Kickstarter stuff. Uh, yes. uh, and there's, well, uh, put, be sure to put up the, uh, the link to my, uh, fiction library on gregstolzy.com because yeah. that's where all these, uh, ransomed out pieces wind up is, you know, they're, they're archived there and you can get them and put them on your e-reader for free. Right. Uh, um, my theory being that once you are exposed to my work, you will become addicted and crave ever more. <laughs> One but, of the first hits always free. Is that it? That's, that's the theory. Uh, <laughs> so what I've, uh, I, I, this just recently, or I guess over the last year or so, I've, uh, had the good fortune to be invited to contribute to a number of, uh, fiction anthologies, which, I mean, I remember back when, I, you know, first started out gaming long, long ago, there was a lot of emphasis on ancillary fiction and, you know, White Wolf was putting out all these novels and the Dragonlance novels were big. And then that sort of fell aside and now it seems to be coming back a little bit. Um, Or it may just be that game companies are flirting with fiction again uh, in an attempt to, you know, broaden their portfolios. I don't really know. But um, I got approached for a couple, I believe it's uh, uh, Stoneskin Press has, uh, they put out one book called The New Hero. Mm-hmm. You seen that one? Um, and uh, I got in volume two of that. And the the great thing what what I've liked about these so far, the uh, the first uh, anthology um had the cover, which was by Gene Ha, looks like uh, an ancient Greek amphora, one of the illustrated vases. Yeah. Uh, but all the figures on it in Greek style are characters from the stories. And so uh, for New Hero 2, the volume I'm in is it's going to be done after the fashion of uh, a Japanese woodcut. And so I got to see a preview of that art and it was, you know, it was fabulous. Um the my character with uh you know her Cadillac is uh, a little bit incongruous, <laughs> but uh so that's in you know Cadillac Anne is in the new hero too. Um, the same company is putting out a book of uh, fables, Aesop style fables. Uh, the last I heard about it, it was tentatively titled Aesop 2.0, and I wrote a story called The Coyote and the High Density Feedlot for that. Um, which I, sadly, I can't say much about it because it's, you know, it's such fables are so short, you know, Aesop stories are so, they've got to be super tight. So by the time I got finished describing it, I would have exceeded it in word count and spoiled everything. (laughs) I'm looking forward to that one coming out just to see what everyone else has, uh, has in there. Um, it reminded me a little bit of uh, that David Sedaris book that came out um, a couple of years ago, I think. Um, oh, what was the one? Uh, Sedaris Fables? Yeah. Do, 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 do. 
Wow. Ah, I've got I've got it in another book. Uh, Squirrel Seeks Chipmunk. Squirrel Seeks Chipmunk is the one. So, yeah. uh, so this is a little bit like that. I got you. Although having read Squirrel Seeks Chipmunk, man, that goes into some shockingly dark places if you're, you know, not kind of braced for it. So, um, there's uh, uh, the uh, don't read this book is coming from. Uh, the uh, guys from Evil Hat, and it's short stories based around uh, Don't Rest Your Head. And I contributed one called Don't Harsh Your Buzz, which is about the perils of self-medicating with caffeine in Mad City. Yeah, that sounds a little dangerous. I We've actually played several sessions of Don't Rest Your Head for the actual play. And uh, yeah, after reading the book and uh, the... Uh, don't lose your mind the the supplement for it. it yeah that doesn't of course pretty much everything in the mad city is a little dangerous i mean there's not really a safe uh well, that's the point i yeah. i got to i got to be a player in a, a game of don't rest your head that was just a ton of fun because i went into it with no idea what was going on and uh the characters were all siblings and so i still just remember uh, the the scene where I'm in, where my sister and I have had the idea that oh we'll get back to the normal world by getting arrested. The police will have to take us. And so we're sitting handcuffed in the back of this police car. And I just turned to her and I'm like, this is the best idea we've ever had. <laughs> uh, she turns back. You're you're right, brother. You're so right. Exactly. Um, you know, actually, uh, I I do want to say, think the the idea of uh, publishers getting back into fiction might be because of the you know the ebook trend and being able to sell ebooks of fiction uh, for very cheap. I know the Eclipse Phase people are selling ebook shorts uh, of stories set in the Eclipse Phase universe as a side project or as you know to help promote. You no, know, I bet that's exactly it. That. I mean, the, the the barriers of the barriers to entry have dropped so so heavily, and that you can uh, instead of having to print ten thousand copies and sell you know half of them to get your nut back, you can now just pay the authors and pay the layout guy and have it available indefinitely without having to do necessarily a lot of hardback printing. I bet that explains it all. It's I'm sh- I'm shocked I hadn't seen that before. I mean, because I've been doing more fiction for right. that exact exactly. reason that it's much more uh, economically feasible. And ebook fiction is a lot easier to do than e- you know ebook uh, RPGs because you know PDFs are problematic on most ebook readers, and the yeah. layout of most RPGs make it very hard to convert to a straight you know Kindle or EPUB format. You know, this, speaking from my own experiences of trying to convert in Zombies of the yeah. World, oh, so. Well. Yeah, it's not any easier on a nook touch. Yeah, so. exactly. So, um, all right. Well, if the, uh, now that we, everyone has, hopefully that answers all the listeners' questions about wild talents, your fiction, and uh, the ransom model, yep. and uh, everything else. Uh, any final words? Uh, uh, nope. Just thanks for having me on again, and right. uh, be seeing you at Gen Con for uh, probably another one of Scott's World War II games, right? Uh, World War One. Yeah, I'm hoping World so. War One this time. Yeah. Well, the first one, last. Oh, okay, wait. The sub one was World War One, and the plane one was World War One. Right. The uh, and the the, the the dig to victory, the trenches was. The, I mean, they're all World War One. Okay. Why am I thinking World War Two? Because we were talking about godlike. Problems. Yeah, that's probably it. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, hopefully there will be another one. Uh, Scott, if you're listening, 
so it's on you man yeah i actually oh one last thing uh i actually played in a call of cthulhu game recently that was set in 1940 we were nazi saboteurs in america okay. uh, sent to assassinate certain people and we get caught up in like our contact is a member uh, of the marsh family that escaped in the insmith raid in 1928 so you know you could see how this is going uh, but at one point we'll ask, okay, well, here's what do you want your fake name to be for this fake, you know, driver's license and everything? Like, uh, I'll Scott Glancy, of course, a whole, uh, all American citizen. So uh, <laughs> uh, my Nazi occultist historian slash sorcerer uh, is uh, my, my name Scott Glancy. Yeah, I, I think he'll like that. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, well, one of the other anthologies uh, that's that's on the pot is for World War Cthulhu. And uh, I uh, I got a story in that called Strange Bedfellows, which is all about uh, the British anticipating uh, the uh, the German invasion of of England. So the the research on that was pretty interesting. That you know uh, the everyone expected that uh, you know the nazis were going to be swarming over the channel any minute now and then you read and they're like no there's no conceivable they that that would have been a really dumb move they didn't really have the the transports to do that and you know most of what they had a british destroyer could take out by going past it and swamping it with its wake so, <laughs> nice so, uh, yeah it was it was interesting research, and I hope I wrote a good story. Good. Uh, well, I'll I'll have to check it out. All right. Uh, well, next up we'll have shout outs. Uh, we'll have the main episode and uh, shout outs, letters, uh, talking with Tom, and more. So we'll see you guys next time. All right. In the interest of full disclosure, Mass Effect 3 has been dominating all of my free time. Now, while I will not be giving a shout-out to it, as unless you are a hermit living in a cave, you know about this game. I will just say that it has latched onto my brain like a deer tick on a fawn. However, while I will not write a letter about something like Mass Effect, it did get me thinking back to about 20 years. Back to a game from the early 1990s, one that I was as into and was as groundbreaking to me as Mass Effect is now. I am referring to SimCity. Allow me to clarify. I am not talking about the old Commodore 64 version. I never played that. I am talking about the Super NES version. Yes, the one with the dwarf with green hair, the Mario imagery all over the place, and one of the sweetest cheat codes in Super NES history. You remember the code, right? First you get your money low enough so that your end-of-the-year expenses will give you negative, negative money. Then, when the year ends and you go to the tax screen... Lower all of your expenses so that your next year's budget equals zero. Then hold down the L button, then exit the screen. When the game goes back to the city screen, immediately go back to the tax screen. While there, raise all of your budget back up to full so your new cash total is once again negative. Then exit the tax screen and then release the L button. You have max money. Ah, memories. I spent countless hours playing this game, and like many players, long before I started building cities, I spent a long time raising them to the ground. 
And the fact that you, the game provides you with seven pre-built cities to destroy, you can avoid building anything for a long time. You had Bern, Tokyo, Boston, Rio, San Francisco, Detroit, and Las Vegas to doom to destruction. There was also the Freedom Land map, with no water and forests in the shape of Mario's head, but you had nothing to destroy. No thank you. To give you some idea of how much I loved this game, let me tell you about this. The primary goal of the game is to make your city into a megalopolis of 500,000 people. It took me a long time to reach that goal. In fact, I can remember the day I first made it to that level. It was on a January 15th. It was a Sunday, and the year was 2012. That's right, I still play a Super NES game even to this day. That's how much that game meant to me, and still does. It is also a very good example of what happens when the average person is given total power over the lives of a population of virtual beings. It always tends to be less about love and compassion and more about target practice. I kept hitting the green footprint button to the disaster menu and dropping an epic level of death and destruction on the helpless citizens of my doomed metropolis. That's why I always found the gods of the polytheistic religions the most interesting. These gods always tended to have more human-like qualities and were always barely contained in sanity. They, cr they crashed in among their mortal followers, fucking, smiting, and destroying everything in sight. So the point of this letter? It's this. SimCity turns you into a crazy Norse god, so go get a copy at once. You can't do this. You can't cut back funding. You will regret this. Now, unfortunately, that's the more advanced SimCity. SimCity 2000. I know. So I still advanced. love. I love that game. Yeah. So tell me, like, that's one thing. I, I, I mean, I would always you know, blow stuff up too, or whatever. But I'd kind of quit the game after, like, all right, I've seen that. I'm done. Did you mm -hmm. actually rebuild cities after you? Played? Actually, uh, eventually, it took. It was about three months of owning that game of just me just smashing cities left and right. Yeah. I, I finally started to build them. And no, I mean rebuild. Like after you draw. Oh yeah, them. actually. Oh yeah, actually, I have done that. Especially when I learned that code. Yeah. I would, you know, there was one time I would like I'd go to like, I would go to the most the biggest map possible, which is by the way map number sixty two on that game. Okay. Uh, just like completely fill, you know, because then you can you can basically pause the game and just build out your entire city on every square inch of the map with the money. Yeah. Then turn it off, pause, and to watch it grow by like twelve to fifteen thousand people each second. <laughs> You know, get you know, get as high a population as you possibly can, and then right at the last moment, and you have to do this. Lower the like I always lower the fire and the uh, police budget, so that suddenly you know they don't tend to sense the fire budget too quickly, but suddenly like crime just explodes, and then you hit them with every single disaster, and the fires will spread out of control. And then once it's once I actually have destroyed every zone, every road, and it's just a. It's just, you know, the whole map is covered in that rubble. Yeah. Then I rebuild it out of the ashes. Okay. Because it makes my ego huge. <laughs> All right. All right. I was always curious. I thought, uh, you know, I, I thought I uh, I wondered if other people just did what I did. It's just like, All right. That was fun. Love yeah. something else. No, I I was God, that was my favorite game for years. And I, this is back during the time of like Super Smash TV and yeah, Mortal yeah. Kombat. Yeah, yeah. I loved that game more than them. Wow. I was not, not a very interesting child. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, we have some shout-outs to get uh, get get through. Um, 
First off, I would like to talk about Liminal States. This is a new science fiction novel from Zach Parsons, one of the writers for SomethingAwful.com. Mm. And uh, I just got two review copies from him uh, just today, so literally I haven't had a chance to crack it open. But it's uh, I'm very interested in it because, one, the trailers, they have to, I'll put a link up to the trailers on uh, Vimeo, uh, are very – it's kind of like – it's got this very complex plot that's hinted at about time travel to the 19th century to this film no you know sort of noir mm-hmm. 40s 50s period or something and into the far dystopian future and it's got it looks you know it's a it's, a, it's like a 400 page novel too it looks pretty pretty right. dense so i'm looking forward to seeing what it's all about but he's put a lot of work into his website uh there's music for it which is the music we're playing in this episode right. uh, the intro and in, uh outro by uh, actually, I mentioned that as Connell Rad, a uh, ambient musician, where you can get his music for, as free download. So if you want something sort of chillax, if you if you like Boards of Canada, you'll like this guy, and you you don't even like right. Boards of Canada, but it's it's for weird it's it's weird music for weird people. But Liminal States looks really cool. I'm looking really looking forward to reading it and seeing what all the hubbubs about. And Tom, we have two copies of it. So Tom, you said you're going to read it. Yeah, I'll read it. You read it, so we'll have two reviews for it. So uh, it's coming out in April. Uh, you can pre-order it now on Amazon, and uh, so yeah, so look forward to that. Okay. And first off, you had one uh, sort of actually about destroying civilization and rebuilding. Yeah, it's actually uh, Caleb mentioned this in an earlier episode. There's a flash game called Rebuild. Yeah, which is uh, you know a flash game about uh, re- rebuilding a society after a zombie apocalypse. Yeah. Which is mainly in this one city, like, you know, you have to, you know, you start with, like, a, a walled compound in, in the city with zombies all around you. And well, since it's more like, you know, you don't ac- actually shoot the zombies yourself. Like, you send people out to either scavenge this area or kill all the zombies in this area. Then, like, you can reclaim it. Well, there's a sequel to it called, you know, Rebuild 2, which is essentially the same game, only they've updated all, a lot of the graphics. Some of the game, there's some extra gameplay. There's now some scenarios. Like, you know, a do- a if you have a lab, like a un- obviously unstable doctor comes in with claims that he has some kind of super project that can save your city. Of course. So you can do it, but he starts required, but he takes over the lab so you can no longer use it. Mm. And he, then he starts demanding uh, special resources. You have to go out into the city to find. <laughs> and if, but, and if you do until you do that, he's not doing anything in the lab and nothing's getting done. But then again, the project might turn out to be great. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, sounds like a good game. Um, I've been kind of a n- noir hit lately. Uh, mm-hmm. and cause actually, you know, when going back to the thing I'm doing, the heretic cycle, I kind of want to make fantasy noir a little like Eberron, but the idea is like the main character in the heretic cycle, I don't do is like some mustache twirling villain or whatever. He sees himself as a career criminal. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's immortal, but he goes, but he's not unkillable. He's just, you know, can't die of old age. And so he just goes around from heist to heist. Uh, basically, and the, the rituals and building dungeons are all to support some sort of criminal scheme he's got on to support himself. He lives in the moment, you know, in the now, not uh, over the, the long period. Mm, I, uh, I have read this. Yeah. So, and uh, actually, I will say that what I kind of like is that he is like a you know the evil overlord that can lose everything and suddenly is just there's in mass confusion and just trying to run. Yeah. So you know, it's like I have all this power, but I also lost all my money, so I actually. Have to start over, yeah. Yeah, I actually have to start over. Yeah, I wanted somebody who like doesn't just like sit and accumulates wealth. He can like 
periodically lose everything and start a little. He has some downtimes. Yeah, he can start over from scratch, and you know, so in some ways, he's like an adventurer. Uh, and, uh, you know, like in and I'm guessing also he has to deal with monsters because other people keep trying to kill him. Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, yeah, he, I still say mon- he is a heretic. Like in fantasy world, monsters are the most oppressed people. Oh yeah, in history. Are. Like, do you read Order of the Stick? I've read it. I'm not. A, I don't not regular, but I do. I've read. I've read. Um, I can't remember where it in, but there. Uh, which it's. I think it's in one of the books. I, oh, the origin of the PCs. Mm-hmm. I think. Or no, uh, darkness. The the creation of the bad guys. They go into the backstories mm-hmm. of the bad guys, the lich and the and the the goblin priest, red cloak, and they go into make a big point. Like, yeah, monsters are oppressed. He, the humans and other mortals just kill them all the time and steal their shit and steal their shit and are celebrated for and it. are celebrated for it. So they're pretty pissed about that. Uh, so yeah, that's actually, yeah, kind of a thing. So, uh, I, I, I wanted to make this kind of like, I, I didn't stylize it like noir. Well, I mean, you can read it and find out <laughs> anyways. Um, but I have been on a noir kick lately. So the reason I bring this up is because there's two movies I've watched recently. I've rewatched, uh, I've seen them. This isn't the first time I've seen, uh, the brick and the killers. The killers is a Stanley, Stanley Kubrick's first studio film. And it's about a, heist at a, a race uh, uh, racetrack, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's our Sterling Hayden, you know, Concrete Jungle, a bunch of other great movies. And it's very, like, you know, 50s noir. Very There's there's voiceover narration, which Stanley Kubrick hated, and they, the studios insisted on him. But it's, it's just this really tightly constructed, really well-done heist movie. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, like the guy, the one of the great things is, is the, and the characters are all great in it. Like every part, every crook who's in it is is great. Like one of them is this guy who muscle who's just hired to cause a distraction at the bar at the racetrack to distract all the guards so the other character can sneak in. And he's Russian, and the guy, <laughs> the Sterling Hayden, goes to recruit him at the chess club. Like there's a there's which is an actual place that Stanley Kubrick hung out. They, I mean, the reconstruction mm. for on a set, obviously, but like. They just go to like chess, you know, twenty cent, twenty five cents an hour to play chess, you know. And he's just like this Russian muscle guy, like, oh yes, I do this job for you. All right, okay, I break some ads, you know. It's like <laughs> very cheerful about it. Very, you know, obviously a very smart person. So um, the next one is Brick, uh, directed by Ryan Johnson, written by Ryan Johnson, uh, and starring Joseph Gordon Levitt. Mm-hmm. Levitt, uh, and it's high school neo noirs. Came out in 2006. I th- I saw it at the Moxie, and I have it on DVD. So it's like my third or fourth time watching it, and it's just this amazingly weird and unique movie. Like the characters talk like noir characters. They got this really sparse mm-hmm. kind of tight dialogue, but they're still high schoolers. And it's about this like his act the. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character's ex-girlfriend contacts him and says, no, you can't contact me. Go away. And then bad things start nah. happening. So, uh, yeah. Uh, you had a, in fact, speaking of bad things happening. The- yeah, I have, a, there's a video game, you know me in old video games. Yep. Uh, this one's actually from the uh, mid to late 90s called Titanic, Adventure Out of Time. Yeah. Which is the Titanic and time travel, kind of time travel. Not, I don't really think, know if it is, but it, you know, you start out as like the, you know, as a uh, British Secret Service agent. You know, it was, now it's like 1942, London, and you know, World War II is on, and you've been, like, you've been pretty much destitute and poor ever since getting fired for failing the Titanic mission. And then suddenly, London. Why did yeah, you have to fail the Titanic? I don't know. Yeah. But then suddenly, London is bombed <laughs> as you're looking through all your mementos of your career, and the windows blow out, and suddenly you're blown. It's like you're back in 1912 on the Titanic. And you have a chance to try to succeed on the mission. Mm. And 
I mean, pretty not bad. I mean, the graphics were okay for the time. I will say that. And, you know, they recreate the ship very well. Mm-hmm. But it's then... It's when you start when you find out what the object what you know what you failed to do and then what your mission is. How long does it take you to play through? Um, if you know what you're doing, maybe well, about maybe not what you know first time. Uh, my first time was it was about five hours. Five hours, so not a long game. No, not a very not long a game Deus Ex or a, no, 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 not no. a Mass Effect. No, it's just a lot of mystery, mysteries and and uh, of course it, my the cop version I had I had came with a strategy guide. Oh, okay. Well, which uh, there's some puzzles like you know some. I said, there's, I was say, there's a lot of the crew that just get you to do their job for them, <laughs> for favors. Like this one guy's just a standard video game. It's like, oh, I know you're trying to save the universe from evil and uh, our genocide, but like, can you like fucking do my gardening for me? You know, you're, of course, as a hero, yes, <laughs> yeah, I'll give you some money. Like, <laughs> but in this one, like, one of the guys, his job is to regulate the steam going through the, you know, from the boilers to the engines or whatever. He can never keep them in balance, so. He's like, hey, if you can get these things in balance, I'll let you into the, you know, into the boiler rooms where you need to go. Yeah. So there you are, like, oh, for God's sake! And finally figure it out. It's like, well, it's like, oh, she's running much smoother now. Go on in. <laughs> wow, that's pretty. And awesome. uh, I'm not gonna. I mean, just in case anyone actually decides to look for this game upon hearing, well, I'll this, have to find a link. I'll have to dig something up. So yeah, yeah but um, I won't tell you the ending. It's just if you get the best ending. Yeah. It's almost. Too good. That's a kind of an inception kind of thing, is it? Yeah. Is he dead? Is he dreaming? Is he in a coma? Who knows? So. Yeah. And um, so yeah, there's that. Also, I think there's this is a to- another different shout out, but we watch. You know, you know, Alice in Rift Tracks. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we watched one recently that oh, I just yeah. think the uh, Breaking Dawn Part One Rift Tracks. Yeah. Which is the only possible way I could watch those movies. Well, yeah. Why would you? Is, I don't think there is another way to watch you know, it. Tom. And uh, that one, my mind that one. That. Well, that one we were sh- like we were lucky to have booze. Well, <laughs> I would have watched it no matter what. Like, yeah, it, it's it's an amazing thing. So it yeah. really is, and really amazing that people still love it. Yeah, I I just cannot. It's kind of like people that I hear that go to the theater not knowing what they want to watch. I cannot. Fathom it. Oh yeah, head. that's the thing. Um, for those of the listeners at home, uh, this is something I brought up uh, to Tom and Caleb, and they're just staggered by it. But um, I read, I read, a lot, I follow the movie, you know, how, a little bit of the movie industry, you know, screenwriting and all this other stuff. And one of the things I've read about is they do all this market research about moviegoers, and you know, what mm-hmm. kind of movies do they want? How do they see movies? You know, figure out what kind of movies will make them money. You know, pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. And the thing they found out is like the majority of people that go to see movies are obviously young men, you know, either with their dates or with their friends, you know. So that's why most movies are marketed towards Mm. young men, you know, like the 14 to 24 year old because they have nothing better to do with their time apparently. And uh, the thing is most people who go to see movies don't know what they're going to go see. They just go there, see what's playing, and then they pick there. And, and they don't necessarily know, yet, like, oh, uh, what's this safe house? Yeah, sure, I'll see that, whatever. Yeah. It's, it, just, it. It, it defies comprehension to me. Right. For us, like, the usual thing is we watch the trailers, we read the videos, like, ah, I want to see Well, that. by the go time we it. decide to go to a movie, we know a lot about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. But that's definitely the majority of them. And most people, it's a spur of the moment, or it's like, fuck it, let's just go out. Or like, oh, let's get the kids out of the house. Or, you know. Uh, yeah, well, 
Okay. I mean, that's, that makes more sense. Like, your parents just want to shove their kids into something, you know, some kid movie plane or mm-hmm. whatever to get them out of the house. But, like, young adults with their own cars, that's their thing. And I know people like, yeah, of course I do that. Or you're, you're probably maybe like us in the minority that are like, I will research everything and choose to go to see that and nothing else. Indeed. And I... No, I just... I, my brain... It's, it's like reading a mythos book. I can't understand how that could happen. Yep. And uh, also... Millions and millions of people love Breaking Dawn, and millions and millions of people view movies that way. It's not right. Right. They just don't... Yeah. Movies aren't as important to them as they are to you and I and other nerds. So. Everyone in our group, basically. Yeah, basically. So. Also, uh, go watch John Carter of Mars. Really? You really care that much? Yeah, I do. I want it to succeed. You're a big Edgar Rice Burroughs fan? Or no, I just kind of like movies like that. That are full of monsters? Hi, Ross. I'm Tom. <laughs> we met. It's like, well, when you say it like that, it's horrible. <laughs> but, uh, yes. All right. Uh, uh, finally, I would like to mention one last thing. Uh, this is a free radio drama that I found on archive.org called Claiborne, which was actually made like five years ago in New Zealand uh, and won a bunch of awards. And it's done like 93 parts, but each one is like five, six minutes long. You download the whole thing, it's like 500 megs. And it's, you know, six, eight hours or whatever of a crazy like this american tourist goes to this town claiborne and weird things start happening and it's it's set in new zealand obviously and it's got really good i've listened to a few of them it's got really good production values and i'm really looking forward to listening to the rest so it's and it's totally free so if you're totally out of rppr go download that and stop you know and then keep listening to our PPR. What am and I bu- doing? What? Oh my God! Never yeah, mind. and buy Ross's books. Yeah, buy buy the Heretic Cycle. Oh my God! Uh, if you like to read my uh, attempts at writing fantasy, then you need yeah. to. And Ross uh, owes me money, so he, yeah. he needs it. Yeah. Uh, so so <laughs> thanks, Tom. Uh, I'm not, I'm just a lone shark. I know, I know. Um, not, I'm, I'm a pretty it's fr- because of the shark part. You didn't even know what loan sharks were. Until like, like, oh, I wouldn't be one of them. Yeah. Is that like a street shark? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Jawsome. Can I say Jawsome? <laughs> Uh, you can, Tom. It, then, then I will say Jawsome. All right. Uh, finally, we have the anecdotes. And uh, this, I'll just set this up and Tom can tell it. Yeah, set the scene, Ross. All right. This is uh, a three or four part game. Three. Three part game that Tom ran uh, for us on the off night. So we had a smaller group. We had me, Aaron, David. Uh, David, you remember from Bryson yeah. Springs. Drew. And Drew. And Caleb was in for one session. Caleb was in for one session. Yeah, this session, too. Yes. Uh, and the thing is, this will not be an RPPR actual play. I We are going to send these to Unspeakable. And uh, the Unspeakable people will, or Shane Ivy will put it up uh, online whenever I get around to it. And that. it will be mocked. And, well, <laughs> it will be loved. Because, <laughs> because it's yeah. awesome. Because uh, b- the basic premise was we were Nazi saboteurs sent to America by submarine to uh dropped off on the east coast by su- uh by U-boat. Su- by U-boat, sorry and we were given like two three main missions well, the first two were to assassinate two you know eggheads you know two an engineer and a physicist and the third one was to set up a resistance slash terrorist group to made, made up of americans right to go you know uh, fuck with american interests so all our characters, we had they're like a pool of eight pregens. I picked the guy who was a Nazi uh, occultist mm-hmm. uh, slash historian, and then there was a sniper, a demolitions guy, blah 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 blah. So that is the premise, and part of it, in order, one of our secondary tasks was to um, 
make kidnap some FBI guys. So what time are you taking from there? Oh yeah. So uh, now the party, uh, the party um, meeting up with their con- their German con- intelligence contact, who had made contact with another guy, who's you know you can. Well, wait until that's released before I'll tell you everything. Yeah. But uh, he wants him to kidnap these uh, FBI agents. Three of them are retired, one's still active. Yeah. So uh, but they're going out. One of the retired ones, uh, David and Aaron's characters, they basically split up into two teams. Like, cause, like two of them are in Georgetown. So they're going to go scout the two in Georgetown first together. Yeah, we're so, all in D.C. In Boston. Yeah, we're all in, D- all in D.C. So two of them break off and two of them go to the go to one agent's house. That was uh, you and... Uh, well, I think, uh, yeah, we were doing you something You and Drew. Else. Yeah, was, yeah. Well, Drew yeah. and Caleb, you were yeah. off doing something else. Yeah, I was. Yeah, just doing research. But it was Aaron and David's character who uh, it was the uh, Gestapo interrogator and the uh, and the and the SS heavy basically. So they go. They're going to this house, and David, you know, thinks of an idea, decides to pose as a door to door salesman. Gets a you know gets a kit, uh, go you know bribes a sale a, an actual salesman gets his kit, and goes to this FBI agent's house and does the you know the hard sell. You know, stick foot in the door, but oh, I don't think you understand the you know the, the myriad of uses of these wonderful things. Well, and David sees that the uh, retired FBI agent has two big German shepherds living in his house, and Aaron's character tries to go around to the back to see if he can hear what's going on. Of course, and he has no. He's, what was their, their original goal was just to scout, just to, to ca- scout the scout to the guy case out, the area, to, to ca- out, you know, case the area this is during broad daylight, broad daylight in yeah. the middle of Georgetown. Yeah. So and. Uh, and David was in there just to get, I mean, to get, an, get a view of the inside of the house, which fuck you know, well enough. But Aaron tries to sneak around back to see if he can hear what's going on, fails his sneak check. So the two dogs hear someone coming around the house and start barking. And the guy, you know, that he's retired FBI, you know, these dogs, you know, these are watchdogs, obviously. So goes goes to see what's going on. So David decides to just kidnap the guy right then and there. You know, Knox does knock him unconscious. You know, pretty effectively with one hit, but that causes the dogs to turn on him. And not only did the dogs turn on him, but the dice decided to turn on him. David, you know, I think he scored one successful hit. I mean, he has a gun, but he doesn't want to use it because that would alert the whole neighborhood to gunfire. Mm. So he decided to just punch the dogs. <laughs> and he's a pretty, he's, a, he's actually the biggest guy of the group. But he just keeps miss after miss after miss. And the dogs keep getting hit after hit after hit. And David has the most hit points of any character, but, by the way, uh, Aaron's hearing this, tries to go back around to the front door to get in, and does, and perhaps succeeds in one of the most unlikely fast-talk checks in history to convince this you know, neighbor lady, who's like, is something going on? You know, to be like, no, no, ma'am, ma'am uh, like, we're, like, everything's fine, I'm, this is my uncle I'm visiting. He has, like, bait, was like five in fast-talk, and he rolls a Base, one. yeah, yeah. So, you know, she falls for it, and he... He goes on trying to get inside while David is actually dropped to zero hit points by these dogs. You know, he wounds one, the other is completely unharmed, and they just savage him. Finally, Aaron gets the door open, and then the dogs see him breaking into the house, and they turn on Aaron. And Aaron starts getting savaged, and he tries to keep it unarmed, and, you know, scores, I think, another one more hit. He knocks one of the dogs out, or kills mm-hmm. one of the dogs. The wounded one. Yeah. But the uninjured one just, you know, gnawing on him. So finally, Aaron realizing that a few more hits and he's going down too, and I'm I'm letting him know, yeah, the dogs are going to finish you off. <laughs> the, well, the dog. So he finally breaks out his gun, fires. You know, of course, the whole neighborhood hears it, and uh, he managed. He's a doctor. He manages to revive David. So and 
And then, you know, for no re- for some reason, I don't know why, they then grab the unconscious FBI agent, run out of the house with him. They didn't do anything to try to conceal. They're just carrying this unconscious guy out of the house in front of about a do- two dozen witnesses just, you know, they're the bystander syndrome, obviously. They're not the yeah. Russian intervene, but it's like getting a great look at all of them as they throw this guy into the back of their truck, get in and take off. And the whole Caleb especially was just Caleb was there just because yeah. he had a night off and he was wanting to play and he he is just like losing his mind at how insane this is because he's like we haven't spent forty minutes on dog punching you know it's and, it's, and that's this has yeah. now become known as the dog punching he drew incident. a memorial that I post that he, yeah. I I put a photo of it on the RPPR group. And Rexy to Rexy and Mr. Snufflekins, the hero dogs who helped stop the Nazi invasion of 1940. Oh my God. I, I, I think you were too lenient on David and Aaron. I Mm. think they should have been caught by the police. I think Mm. they should have had new characters, but I, cause I was a player at the time, so I didn't say anything, but I was like, yeah, uh, destroy them. That's what I would have. Even I was like, well, you guys did that. Yeah. Yeah. of course there, there's, there's a room for like, just stunned, like, I don't know how to process this. No, we, we did take. There was a, a moment of silence, yeah, not not a, of not in reverence for the dog, but okay. just of shock. Yeah, like, are we really doing this? We're really doing this. This and is... uh, of course, David. Uh, David, you know, tried to justify it too. Yeah, yeah no, I I know. Any yeah, player's it, got it. Got some rationale for their actions, but I mean, uh, they got the agent. Yeah, they they did get the agent. So. But wow, yeah. just dog punching. Dog punching. And uh, with that note, uh, I think this will be enough for episode. But episode seventy-one, you got wild talents, and uh, this is Ross Payton, and I'm Tom Church, and we'll see you guys next time. We will. <laughs> <laughs>